Digital Gonzo, episode 131, recorded Sunday the 12th of May 2013, Star Trek. I couldn't believe it when the bartender told me who you are. Why are you talking to me, man? Your father was captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives. Including yours. I dare you to do better. Enlist in Starfleet. You will experience fear. Fear in the face of certain death. received a distress call. I've been waiting for this day my whole life. This day of reckoning. We've got no captain and no first officer to replace him. Yeah, we do. You are capable of deciding your own destiny. The question is... Which path will you choose? James T. Kirk was a great man, but that was another life. They're locking torpedoes. Emergency evasive! Fire everything! This is principally a review of the 2009 film directed by J.J. Abrams. Now, every podcast I have listened to covering this movie is largely negative. So if you want to hear something along those lines, you have an ocean of choice available to you. My crew and I, however, love the film for a multitude of reasons, which we will go into in great detail, not forgetting, of course, to point out the bits that don't make any sense. So if that's something you'd like to hear, then you came to the right place. The aforementioned crew on the well-trodden bridge of the Gonzo tonight include Science Officer Lieutenant Commander Joshua Garrity of Canaan Rince. Hello there. Chief Communications Officer Lieutenant Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. Senior Helmsman Lieutenant Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. Good day, sir. And after nearly two years' leave of absence from Nevermind the Buzz Geeks, Chief Medical Officer... Dr. Michael Fox. Oh, I knew you were going to go down that freaking Dr. Fox route, you shit. <laughs> and from the Little Metal Dog Show. Hello, Michael. Hello, Alec. Damn it, Alex. I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, damn it, I'm not a doctor. Okay. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to start with a brief history of Star Trek and then... Once that's done, we can get our teeth into the Abrams film. If any of you guys feel the need to chip in at any point, go with the feeling rather than letting the moment slip by. Oh, believe me, I will. There is a well-established theory that there have been three generations of Star Trek, this movie being the start of the third. Some variations even lump in the 1979 motion picture with the original series. But I would like to posit that there are actually four. The first comprises a period of only two years of production from 1966 to 1967. That's the three original series and 79 episodes. They hit America at a time we were breaking Earth's atmosphere and about to land on the moon. 
To this you could add the Hanna-Barbera animated show which featured the original voice cast in 22 episodes from 1973 to 74, although these are not considered canon by most. Despite the short span of years, the original series was massively popular and influential and instrumental in the growth and popularity of sci-fi conventions. The principles of geeks coming together to share in discussion of the shows that they love is an absolute principle of the Gonzo community, so for Star Trek's part in the geek revolution, I will always remain thankful. In my thinking, the second generation started with the motion picture in 1979. This began a period spanning 23 years and 10 movies. In the middle of this, the third gen began in 1987 with The Next Generation, heretofore known as TNG, which ran for seven seasons from 87 to 94. Deep Space Nine, or DS9, which was seven seasons from 93 to 99, Voyager, another seven seasons, 95 to 2001, and Enterprise, four seasons, 2001 to 2005. That's 25 seasons, all told. 620 episodes. And something like 500 hours of material. Maybe the most densely packed, extensive, fascinating, and daunting fictional universe ever created. The reason it's important to differentiate between the second and third gen is that the movies and TV shows at this stage and all others were serving two different and intermingled audiences. Most Star Trek fans went to see the movies, but they were not alone. Millions of people who did not watch the TV shows yet were aware of Star Trek through its cultural relevance and growing popularity turned up at the cinema. The ten movies of this arbitrary second generation, as we all know, vary wildly in quality, but all have one thing in common. They cannot, within the constraints of a two-hour picture being viewed by an audience many times larger than those deeply familiar with the wider world, present a story anything like as subtle, complex, and far-reaching as those presented on TV. To this end, there were different approaches made, and excuse these one-line reviews, for our purposes they will have to suffice. Once again, guys, if you want to add a few comments, feel free. Motion picture in 79 was slow and thought-provoking, compelling to some and deathly dull to others. Mm, yeah, Sounds I'm down reasonable. with that. <laughs> okay. Wrath of Khan in 82 was an exciting and emotionally charged reboot, action-packed, tragic and uplifting, structurally a great adventure that you could watch without ever having seen a TV episode, and thus regarded by most as the best. I would also add that it's a great example of making small scale, a small-scale event feel much bigger than it actually is. Because mm. most sci-fi stories are, end of the world, oh my god, but this one was just a revenge story, but it felt bigger than it was yeah it's Plus, also got I'd... a lot of emotion in there as well it's a very you know in some parts of it it's a very hard film to watch yeah buried alive <laughs> I was waiting for that <laughs> sorry too easy <laughs> Uh, there's also take a, take a drink every time someone says any Star Trek quote. Uh, there's also the fact that by building on a previous TV episode, they're giving plenty of nods to fans of the show. Oh yeah, yeah. without alienating people who hadn't seen it before. Yeah, Khan himself reiterates what happened in the episode Space Seed. Okay, moving on. Search for Spock in 84 was more thoughtful again, slow, cerebral, with some mismatched action. Some love it, others consider it a poor follow-up to... Yeah, I agree. Sharon, you like camp. I, I am, yeah. Um, but I, I agree, people are, are fairly split on it, but I like the ideas that are explored in it, and I think they're explored pretty well, so... 
Voyage Home in 86 was inventive and silly with the common touch, a good heart, and time travel leaving it set on Earth in the 1980s, making it more relatable to non-spacefaring sci-fi fans. It was thus the most popular. Its meagre budget of $21 million made $133 million back, and considering its everyday setting, it was by far the most profitable of all the movies, including the new ones. Really? Well, it, just in terms of how much they invested and how much they got back. Oh, okay. So the return. Okay. Yeah. So, the I mean, less sets necessary. Even, a, even adjusted for inflation, it didn't make as much as the new one, but it cost a lot less. Well, yeah. All them them whales don't come cheap. But um, this is pro- this is one of the weird ones for me because I, I like it as a movie, but I don't like it as a Star Trek movie because mm. it's it's just so. It, it's like freaking police academy and space. <laughs> it, there's, ju- it, there's just so many sort of like space oh, w- wacky bits in it. All these crazy people. How did they live like this? These barbarians. It's just oh, what the. Final Frontier in '89 was daft, sloppy, and aimless, mixing theology with science in a clumsy way and highlighting how old the actors were becoming. It was also the first film produced after The Next Generation revitalised the franchise's life on TV and was thus in stark contrast with that more cerebral and considered series. Thus, almost nobody loves this one. (laughs) The Undiscovered Country in 1991, for the first time, focused on the interplanetary diplomacy of the original series as well as the third generation. It was a tense, emotionally charged political thriller and a stellar farewell to the original crew. I'm talking mainly with the uh, the sign-off being just the end when you get all those autographs on the screen. That was kind of lovely. Course heading, Captain. Second start of the ride. And straight on till morning. Log Stardate 9529.1. This is the final cruise of the Starship Enterprise under my command. This ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew. To them and their posterity will we commit our future. They will continue the voyages we have begun and journey to all the undiscovered countries, boldly going where no man, where no one has gone before. It's like it's a proper goodbye that you you needed to get. Generations in 94 was the new home for the TNG crew, who were just finishing their seven seasons. Unfortunately, this and the other three failed to grasp what made Picard and crew so significant to either fans or the wider audience. Generations is a wretched mess, clumsily bringing back Kirk just for muscle work and to give him a pointless death nobody wanted. Fair? No, absolutely. Uh, I wait. My memories of generations are kind of uh, not generations. The uh, the TV show Next Generation mm. is kind of foggy because I watched it as a child, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, because they used to rerun that show over and over again. Um, but 
I remember it being quite a cerebral show. It's probably aged now, but it it always went for like really high-minded concepts and really cool sci-fi ideas that they couldn't quite convey at that time because of budget restraints and mm. technology restraints. But at least they aim for the you know aim for the stars. Whereas this all felt a bit like weak and silly and lowest common denominator. Yeah, it just yeah. wasn't really well crafted. First Contact in 96 is considered by most TNG fans to be the best of these four movies, uh, but most would also admit that Picard is now gripped with an inexplicable bloodlust and thirst for revenge against a species he's already showed mercy to. This one was action-based, did splendidly at the box office, and once again featured time travel. No! No! I, I think the idea of Picard being, uh, you know... A warmonger is kind of kind of goes completely against his character. Yeah. I always see Kirk as the you know the the guy full of bravado who's going to jump headfirst into a situation. Picard is somebody who's going to resolve issues with his words. So yeah. I, yeah, I didn't like that at all. In all of these, he he seems to end up in a grey vest a lot. It's like he's doing Bruce Willis. Clearly not a fan of TNG, but even I could see that Picard was not being the man he's supposed to be there. Uh, Insurrection in 98 was an attempt to return to the diplomatic structure of the TV show. However, like so many of the others, it doesn't make much sense. Picard is still angry and vengeful, and you can add boring to the list of issues. And Nemesis in 2002 swung the pendulum back towards dark action, but the film is a repulsive cocktail of brutal, nonsensical, dull, pointless and stupid. Many Trek fans now rightfully hate it for being the discordant swan song for the crew they had spent years getting to know. Audiences at the time who were enjoying Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter and Spider-Man found every element lacking. It's notable that the Romulan clone of Picard in this, Shinzon, is played by Tom Hardy. Who's unrecognisable because he's so skinny in that movie. Yeah. Whereas you see him in The Dark Knight Rises and he's a giant of a man. I'm not a reckoning. Because I actually think Tom Hardy's a really good actor having seen him in films like... The Warrior Inception. Uh, Inception. What's the one where he has a massive mustache? I forget what it's called. Um, Bronson. That's oh, yeah. yeah. He's really excellent in that. And yeah, it's a shame that his career started this way. The second generation ended there, not with a bang, but with a bloody fart. The third generation closed out with the end of the fourth season of Enterprise in 2005. When it began in 87, TV sci-fi was ill-served. When it ended 18 years later, we had Quantum Leap, Red Dwarf, The X-Files, Sequest DSV, Sliders, Babylon 5, Stargate, Farscape, Firefly, Lost, The New Doctor Who, and Battlestar Galactica. Star Trek initiated this sudden surge of interest, necessitating a sci-fi channel, but conversely, it ended up a victim of its own influence, with too much competition and profitability waning. Simply put, as much as fans lament, it had run its course, and like so many other brands, had to go away for a few years to hibernate and give people a break, to make us want more adventures, and to allow a new generation of viewers to grow a little. A mere four years later, in 2009, Star Trek was released. It was an exciting and emotionally charged reboot, action-packed, tragic and uplifting, structurally a great adventure you could watch without ever having seen a TV episode, and thus regarded by many as the best. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. 
I am in the ideal position to best enjoy Star Trek 2009, which from here on we'll call New Star Trek, to avoid having to clarify every single time. I saw some of the original series back when I was a kid, a few episodes of TNG, enough to know that who everybody was, watched the TNG movies and wondered what all the fuss was about, watched the motion picture and Wrath of Khan at some point, and then a week or so before seeing the new Star Trek, I watched all six original films back to back. I knew enough about the world and what motivated the characters to spot most of the winks and nods and to engage with the emotion. I wasn't a fan, and thus my requirements were wholly met. However, I can see perfectly well how if I had been a die-hard trekker, it would have left me fuming. Uh, what think you of Galaxy Quest? Freaking awesome. Galaxy Quest. <laughs> Who doesn't love Galaxy I Quest? I, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever had someone say that they don't like it. If, if you hate Star Trek, you might like Galaxy Quest because it rips the piss out of Star Trek. If you love Star Trek and it's very special to you, you might love Galaxy Quest because... It's special to the people who made Galaxy Quest. I don't think I've ever actually seen Galaxy Quest. Oh, dude. Oh, 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 go see yeah. Galaxy Quest. Rectify that immediately. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's my Let's favorite vote. of the 11 first Star Trek movies. Uh, the short of it is, it is a, a fictional Star Trek that would have taken place in between the original series and uh, TNG. And the uh, actors involved in it haven't been on TV for years. They're washed up. They do com- the convention circuit. And then a bunch of aliens come down who have been watching their show, believe it's a documentary series, and recruit them to help save their race from uh, evil aliens. Uh, like I say, it's, it's both in love with Star Trek and pointing out all the silliness that goes on uh, uh, within Star Trek. And at the, at the same time, it manages to get the emotions at, at times when you, there, there's a lot of characters in there and they've, they've got a lot of conflict going on. Well, I have a- to say, when I saw them at the, uh, when they do the, the bit at the convention at the beginning, mm. I wasn't thinking of the Star Trek cast. Who, who were you thinking of? Firefly. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Ten years on, still doing conventions. Yes, going broader all the time. Josh? I think it's definitely a parody in the same line as Shaun of the Dead, Mm, mm. in that uh, it is very, very funny, but you do fall in love with the characters as well, and they're clearly in love with the material they're talking Mm -hmm. about. Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, Missy Pyle, Sam Rockwell. It's, oh god, yeah. isn't he just like, he's like guy. crewman? Crewman yeah. number six. <laughs> the, uh, the red shirt. More red shirts in a bit. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's Galaxy Quest. That's, we'll put that to bed. I almost considered reviewing Galaxy Quest. I might actually do it at some point this year. By Grabthar's hammer. By the sons of Warvan. You shall be avenged. By way of comparison, George Lucas made three prequels to his successful Star Wars trilogy. This was partly for monetary and merchandising reasons, but it seemed more like an attempt to go back and through the same experience he originally had, only this time with complete control and all the technological breakthroughs of the interim decades. As a result, every moment of those films is compromised and sterile, too rigid and drained of all humanity. 
Michael Bay's Transformers, and especially its two sequels, took a broad universe of colourful characters created to sell toys and made a shallow, leery, dumb and emotionless collection of deafening action and clumsy, unfunny comedy. It was made only to sell toys and make more movies to sell more toys. New Star Trek is neither an obvious and direct cash-in, nor the compromised work of a team living in fear of an over-controlling leader. Serenity was a film pulled together by its bootstraps by fans for fans. It's mostly impenetrable to people who haven't seen Firefly and aren't familiar with the characters, and it made $100,000 less than its $39 million budget. X-Men. And was worth every penny. It totally was. X-Men was a movie that comic fans have been waiting for for nearly four decades. It took the premise seriously and contained several fine performances, hamstrung by feeble sub-TV-level action sequences. New Star Trek is neither feeble nor constrained by being a continuation of a story only seen by the fan minority of its potential audience. Futurama, Bender's Big Score, was a straight-to-DVD film aimed solely at fans. It was crammed to the gills with references to the previous four seasons that only someone familiar would catch. It holds a freshness rating of 100% from its eight reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and sold about $4 million worth of units to sci-fi geeks who still cared. It's brilliant. The Simpsons movie was released in 2007, the same year as Transformers. It aimed straight for the middle, coming off as an extended episode in the now prolonged period after the show's decline some years previously. Long-time fans were surprised at how pedestrian the story was, going over the same well-trodden ground with only shiny animation to separate it from TV. Non-fans seem to like it, however. It has 90% freshness rating from 195 reviews, and the box office was... Anyone? More than it bloody deserved. $527 million. The world is broken. New Star Trek may seem like exactly this from the outset, but the circumstances are entirely different. New Star Trek goes above and beyond simply trottering out a humdrum, self-contained feature-length episode. The Simpsons movie was made after years of demand. It was a one-off. Star Trek is the first of this new fourth generation. It is designed to reintroduce the world to the characters and lore of the original Star Trek. Not remaining entirely faithful to the original timeline, and in fact purposefully diverging from it, is to be commended. Destroying Vulcan changes everything. Uhura and Spock, in a close, intimate relationship, changes everything. Change allows for originality, growth, and the unexpected. Relationships and dealing with death allows for emotion and depth. Ideally, though, what I would imagine a lot of fans wanted was a handoff from the third generation to this one. The first crew got to do this twice. So what happened to Picard, Worf, Riker and company? Is Nemesis the last we will ever see of them? The writing team of Alex Kurtzman and Robert Orkey, who it just so happens also wrote Transformers together, as well as The Island, Mission Impossible 3 and Cowboys and Aliens, unlike Abrams himself, are long-time Trek fans and wanted to work these elements into the film. However, TNG is considered box office poison, and even the slightest link back to it will alarm, confuse, or bore a mass audience. Try explaining in one quick sentence that behind the Narada coming through the black hole at the beginning, there's the new Enterprise in the year 2387, captained by Data. Try telling your mum Geordie designed the jellyfish, Spot Prime's nimble little ship. The extended fiction and comic books may be all we have to illuminate the ghostly link across time between then and now. 
what fans have to come to terms with is that this handover is very much there and conducted by Spock Prime himself. He may be from the original crew, but he was working with TNG before the events of the movie. He is the last vestige of the old world, sent in to offer advice and blessings to the new. And he said he wouldn't do Generations. So ultimately, if he's on board this one, there's a certain amount of trust that comes with that. Because here's another thing. This movie was going to happen at some point. Whether in 2009, 2019, or 2029, there was going to be an Academy Years series mooted back by creator Gene Roddenberry in the 60s, reconfigured as a film series back in the early 90s, and abandoned in favour of TNG films. But that's just the setting. What I mean is, this was always going to happen. A Trek film that had mass pop culture appeal and did things in a way that pleased the vast majority of people. If this one had been more esoteric, slow, and closer in style to, say, the motion picture or insurrection, it would have been rejected, and the license would hibernate for a few more years, then new Star Trek would come out at some future point instead. And if they'd failed that time, it would just keep happening until new Star Trek was out in every world across every eventuality spectrum. The license and the interest in the world will never die. It's bigger than every man or woman on the planet, and immortal. The only question is what form it will take when it emerges, and right now this is the one it needs to take. Looking at it in the big picture, we have decades to explore the deeper aspects once again with this fresh perspective. The less expensive, more niche appeal approach is only possible and long-lasting once the world is accepted. That is how TNG came to be. Immediately after The Voyage Home, the most popular, fun movie of the first four. New Star Trek, film number one, did not have to be all things to all people. Only good enough to make most people want more. The fact that it was, structurally speaking, way better than even that baseline requirement strengthens my resolve that this was the absolute best combination of elements we could have hoped for. This is Batman Begins and Casino Royale. It is the rebirth that every long-running and immortal series needs. And there was a very simple model already in existence to garner it the required foothold. Tell me if this one's familiar. We open with an enormous ship owned by the bad guys. Bearing down on a tiny and good ship, things do not go well for the smaller vessel. Cut to a young farm boy who dreams of a life in the stars and an experience beyond his dull existence. His father was a starship captain from a military background, and he wishes to follow in the man's footsteps. After going to a cantina, he meets an experienced captain, a feisty woman, a stick in the mud, and an old wizard who helps him get off this planet and onto an exciting starship. They fly at warped speed and emerge into a debris field in front of a gigantic space station that destroys the home planet of one of the hero's new companions. They effect a rescue from the space station and blow it up from within using a small nimble ship before it can blow up the planet that their military base is on. The farm boy becomes a hero and gets a medal in a big ceremony at the end. Anyone? I've got clue what you're talking about. <laughs> it was based on the last Starfighter. And yeah, great film. That. <laughs>
So what can you tell me about the world just from watching these first 12 minutes before the titles roll? You immediately get the sense that this is a a multicultural world that all cultures are except because the 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 crew of the ship are very very diverse there's and i don't mean multicultural just in the sense of different races of humans i mean different aliens and different creatures are on this ship and there's a sense that they're all collaborating together like Star Trek and Mass Effect kind of share this very optimistic take on the future mm. that where we'll all come together to help each other. Mm. And that that's something that you immediately get across in the first 12 minutes. It's this glorious, bright, shiny future where everything is, is fantastic. And then all of a sudden, with the uh, the, the arrival of this, this huge, immense, evil-looking vessel, everything just goes to merry hell. It's made out of knives. Yeah, it, I mean, I mean, I was blown away by it. There's one bit of it that just showed me the level of thought and care that the guys had put into the movie. Everything has gone to shit. Everything. There's explosions everywhere, left, right, center, and then it just cuts out to um, a shot uh, in space, and there's no sound at all. Mm. And that woman gets sucked out. Yeah, she gets sucked out into into the void. A a complete deficiency of sound. No sound whatsoever. Mm. And that bit is just so powerful because around it, everything is exploding and there's noise and then all of a sudden, utter silence. And it was just, it takes your breath away. You have that second of just like, whoa, where did everything go? And oh, it's just, it's amazingly striking. So they, cool. They do play with the sound repeatedly. They're, they're, that was kind of an acknowledgement that, yeah, we know there is no sound in space. We're going to be sh- playing your sound in space later on just because it makes it more exciting. But, mm. you know, there's this is the void. And then later on they do sometimes with just sound effects. And then later on they do sometimes with just music. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like they, they play all three cards. They do a neat little misdirection uh, when he's referred to as Mr. Kirk, and uh, because they hired Chris Hemsworth, who looks remarkably similar to Chris <laughs> Pine and was on yeah. own at the time, a lot of people just assumed that was Jim Kirk. So they didn't know what was going to happen, which uh, even I were, you know, wasn't sure when it was obvious that he was definitely George Kirk, and he even get, he gets named uh, later on when you know, it's kind of too late for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not obvious what's going to happen, and then they start to... This is one thing that J.J. Abrams tends to do really, really well, and that I'm always astonished people don't give him credit for. In the first few minutes of movies, Super 8, Mission Impossible 3 as well come under this, he gets you on board by showing you characters who care deeply about each other. Very deeply. In all three occasions, in a life or death situation. Um, In uh, Mission Impossible 3, it's when uh, Tom Cruise, because he's not even a character, is being interrogated uh, and Michelle Monaghan has a gun to her head got to count to 10 or she's going to die and it's a really scaled down small situation in comparison to the you know jumping off trains and stuff that normally happens in that kind of movie but it's sudden you know interpersonal going on in super 8 it's just a factory and they change the amount of days since the last accident to zero and you go god something terrible's happened and then it cuts to a young boy and you go oh my god his one of his parents has just died and look what it's done to him getting you to suddenly care about characters that you've never met before because we never really seen George Kirk in anything and we've never seen Winona Kirk either it tells you within those 12 minutes this is what Star Trek is about 
It's about yeah. family and it's about caring about somebody more than yourself and yeah, caring about an ideal yeah. more than yourself. Yeah, there's a great feeling of, of personal, I, I want to say personality, but that's the wrong word, mm. that there is personal dashness in it. Sorry, I have terrible, terrible use. Personal dashness. I'm so glad we got you. Yes. Per- terrible use of the English language. This is why I've not been on the show for two years. So okay. even amongst all the explosions, all the chaos, all the insanity that's going on, there is this tiny, tiny, this moment of life, this snapshot of, of Winona and the, and, and the child being born. And then the little sort of like, um, the, the back and forth on the comms between her and George as he's just about to, just about to sacrifice his life in order to save everybody. And that's just heartbreaking. And it's not what you really expect from a Star Wars, uh, from a Star Trek, Star uh, Wars movie. What am I about? From, yeah. It's not what you it really expect. It will be expect. soon enough. Yes. From a Star I, Trek movie. It's, it's amazing. Hell, Steph, Steph had never seen it. My wife Steph had never seen Star Trek, mm. uh, the, the new Star Trek movie until last week. Because she didn't want to, she didn't want to experience in a way that might ruin her memories of the old series for her. And we, we, we sat her down and said, look, okay, we're going to watch this and it is excellent. You will enjoy it. And she was in tears at the end of that little section because it is so, so sad. It reminds me a lot of the sequence before the Battle of Helm's Deep starts in the Lord of the Rings films, mm. where they're constantly flashing back to the the caves where all the women and children are. It's a reminder of what this person is fighting for. Yeah. It's not just action. There is a purpose behind it. Yeah. I think the the key for that scene for me is George's acceptance of what he's doing and why Um, and the fact that he his last moments literally his last seconds there's no swearing at Nero there's no anger there's no teeth gritting holding onto the console growling as he you know smashes forward he just wants to tell his wife he loves her that's all and that really grabbed me the, the, the remit at this point was how are we going to get our wives um, to see this film and to like this film? Well, one of the easiest ways is, of course, to fill it with sexy men. And they did. The, the other thing is, is, is bringing it down to this very human moment, which everyone is connected with in some way. It's something absolutely universal. And, you know, out in the weirdness and strangeness of space, to bring it back just to that, brilliant move. Leaving. Where are you? Sweetheart, listen to me. I'm not gonna be there. No. This is the only way you'll survive. Please don't the ship. You have to be here. The shuttles will never make it if I don't fight them off. Short. I can't do this without you. Okay, I need you to push now.
What is it? A boy. A boy? Tell me about it. He's beautiful. George, you should be here. Impact alert. What are we going to call him? We could name him after your father. Tiberius? You kidding me? No, that's the worst. Let's name him after your dad. Let's call him Jim. The, the idea was your heart breaks and then it soars because after that they come in with the and that were, again that wasn't supposed to be at this point of the movie but they brought it forwards because after that you needed something to tell you it's worth carrying on that was a triumph it was not a defeat Originally, the original cut, it started with the birth of Spock, and they showed this... If you, have you guys seen the deleted scenes? No, I haven't. It started with this weird alien baby. It's like a CGI thing with, with pointy ears, and the immediate reaction is, oh, kill it with fire! It's not, oh, look at the baby. And uh, you've got all these you know, sort of austere Vulcan uh, matriarchs standing around going, why does she cry? And, and then it was going to be your baby Spock, then baby Kirk, then young Spock, then young Kirk, then older Spock, then older Kirk. There's just too many back and forth. So they just, they got rid of Spock and they kept young Kirk and then you just see the sequence as normal. But they put the title sequence in there just, to, just so that you could watch that, that there'd be an uprising and then you go, <sighs> for a second or two, just so that you can absorb what you've just seen and then that, that was important. Um, but unfortunately that does mean that you don't get to see Winona Ryder without makeup on. And the one reason they cast a young actress to play a lady who's supposed to be a lot older later on. So it is an odd casting if she's not actually ever seen as young. Yeah, that's a bit of a weird one. Watching through while taking notes, it is clear that in creating this film, they had a checklist of beats to hit. Familiar phrases, costumes, ships, gadgets, and situations, which the average person, average, Mark you, associates with Star Trek. How many of these tropes can you name? <laughs> and that, I don't oh, mean like okay. little tiny little things that were hidden in the background as sort of like little nods to Trek fans. I mean things that if you asked your mum, mm. your average mum, not your geek mum, I do love geek mums, but um, uh, if you asked the average mum, what can you tell me about Star Trek? She'd go, uh, and then she'd list you like seven things. Yeah. Uh, live long and prosper. That is on my list. Live long and prosper, plus the hand gesture. Yes. Um, is red shirt a one that everyone yep. would know? Yeah, I, I think that's more of a geeky thing. But the yellow, blue, and red shirts of the crew—you you show people guys wearing those, and their mind's going to go to Star Trek, especially if they're, wearing, if they're wearing a badge. If they know a bit more about it, then they'll know that the red shirts are doomed. And yeah, oh my, he, he does <laughs> really <laughs> <get> <laughs> like. <laughs> 
properly. Like, not even check his pulse. <laughs> he might come back from that. No, no, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead, Jim. I mean, they lost him. <laughs> Damn it, I'm not a doctor. Right. He's dead, no. Jim, actually is one of these, but I don't believe it's in the film. I don't think it is, no. no. Because we were, we were basically playing Star Trek Bingo last week. Yeah. Trying to spot as many little weird bits as possible. God. But, I mean, Bones does have his damn it, Jim. Do you know what? He says it like five times. Yeah. He says, either damn it, Jim, or I'm a doctor, or damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor. Um, or damn it, I'm a doctor. In uh, Like five times. So, yeah. Yeah. Take a shot. Um, but I think okay, they didn't put his dead Jim in there because it would have made people laugh. And no one could die that would make people laugh. Maybe, maybe a Romulan could die. But they might get that into the next one. Uh, Uhura having an excruciatingly short skirt and an excruciatingly large earpiece. I see no problem with either of these. <laughs> I don't know if people would immediately be able to reel that one off straight off the bat, but if they thought about it long enough, yes. Well, actually, you, you could you could see that whole thing with the whole uniforms because the uniforms in the the new Star Trek movie. Z- um, do have that sort of retro 60s vibe about them. Mm. All the nurses down in the medical bay are wearing short skirts, yeah. <laughs> which they just wouldn't be. Yeah. If we're talking about a bright future, mind you, it's a bright future where women don't mind being leered at. <laughs> or just make, maybe men don't leer. Now, that's not the case, because Jim's no. going, he's, he's a horny dog in a Miss Lovely Legs contest. Oh, oh, I've got yeah. another one. I've got another one. I've got another oh, one. Um, I... Green alien sexy oh, lady. Yes. Canoodling <laughs> with a green woman. Well done. That is one of my favourite bits of the film. Yep. <laughs> I'm like probably going to say this wrong. Lithium diameters to speed. Yeah, I, I think they're just talking about the dilithium crystals. Dilithium crystals. crystals. Yeah. Oh, or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. Mm. Keep going along the Scotty line. Oh, she can't take it, Captain. I'm giving her all she's gotten, Captain! Or something along those lines, yes. Uh, there's another one connected with Scott, Montgomery Scott, which is so obvious. Like, that's the one thing everyone remembers about Star Trek. I heard this line before I knew what Star Trek was. You can't change the laws of physics? No, just beam me up, Scotty. Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> in all seriousness, I don't think anyone actually straight out says it in the film, but there's a lot of beaming up and Scotty's behind it. You cannot change the laws of physics. Laws of physics. Laws of physics. You cannot change the laws of physics. Laws of physics, Jim. Oh, we got a beast. Shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. We got a beast. Shoot to kill. Scotty, beam me up. It's worse than that. He dead, Jim. Dead, Jim. Dead, Jim. It's worse than that. He dead, Jim. Dead, Jim. Dead. Well, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Not as we know it. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Um, there's loads of that's illogical, of course. Fascinating. I have been, and always shall be, your friend. Live long and prosper. Oh, neck pinch. Yep. Yeah. Okay, neck pinch gets at least one of them in uh, into this movie. And the mind meld. And the mind meld. Yep. Uh, and uh, we're ve- we're veering now into the stuff that you you'd have to have watched the show to know, as opposed yeah. to the being. It's getting close. There are a few very basic ones. The Starship Enterprise. Everyone knows that. Kirk, Spock, Bones, Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, and Scotty. They're definitely now Kirk and Spock, if nothing else. The average. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Chekhov's impenetrable accent. 
<laughs> nuclear vessels. Which they really take the Wichter, piss out of. Wichter. 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 He actually, Anton Yeltsin even said, you know, Russians don't talk like that. Yeah. <laughs> but they said, do it, do it now. Actually, yeah, talking to people on the bridge, on view screens, that's a classic Star Trek thing that people you know, wouldn't immediately think of, but the second they see that happening, they'd think Star Trek. Uh, mentioning, of course, Klingons, Vulcans, and Romulans. Yep. In yep. order of priority. And uh, Starfleet Academy in San Francisco. That's just kind of an iconic image now. But I phases? Think phases, phases, yeah, set phases to stun. You feel nothing! It must not even compute for you. You never loved him! <laughs> I thought that the entire film would just be a, a cynical collection of, hey, remember this? Wink, wink, nod, nod. But it's actually, it's, they're, pr- they're pretty careful about it. There is a point where suddenly they open up the pressure valves and they bombard us with like six within the space of a few minutes. And again, I have no problem with that. Yeah, I think at that point, basically, you've entered into the spirit of the film and that they feel that they can cut loose a little bit. Then, oh, there's Kirk on a planet talking into his tricorder going, Stargate 2258-42. Spock is a dick. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I have been and always shall be your friend. And then after he says that, he says, I am Spock, which I believe is a book by Leonard Nimoy. Um, His first one was, I am not Spock. (laughs) I've heard, I am am also Scotty. (laughs) I think the the nerdiest reference in the film actually takes up a big chunk of the film, mm-hmm. which is the Raf of Khan simulation reference, uh, trying to save that Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Do you guys want to talk about the Kobayashi Maru at this point? Yeah, why What's not? It mean, because I've heard um, Mr. Plinkett, who does a brilliant review of this particular Star Trek film. Uh, d- said it is not about feeling fear. That is a, a misconstruing of the uh, initial, of the point of the Kobayashi Maru. You can't mm. go into the Kobayashi Maru thinking it's anything other than a simulation. Yeah. It's a test. It's an exam. Your fear would be that you're going to fluff the exam. Yeah, I, I think the whole thing behind the Kobayashi Maru is that you've got to know that it, 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 it's how you are going to react in the face of knowing that you're going to fail. I yeah. think that's more what it's about. And the fact that they say that it's oh it's 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 a test of of being able to handle fit that's that's a, a slightly incorrect way of saying it, saying it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you still panic if you think you're going to get the test wrong. If yeah. you're if you go into yeah. it not knowing that it's an automatic fail, mm. then mm-hmm. you will start to panic and you will start to stress out. It's a test to see if commanders will deal with that stress and still cope. Um, but uh, Kirk's decision is, I don't believe in a no-win situation, and he completely subverts the purpose <laughs> of the test. The whole bit with the apple. A lot of people said that's a nod to the fact that Kirk talks about it in Wrath of Khan, uh, talks about cheating while eating an apple. Apparently, it's just an alarming coincidence. Apparently, J.J. Abrams knows that when people eat apples in a cocky way, it makes you want to hit them. So that was why that he gave it to that. I think that's possibly just what they uh, had um, the, the same thinking behind having Jim do it in Rathakal. The only way it could work, the Kobayashi Maru, uh, because it would be spread about within the Hogwarts Star of Fleet Academy. <laughs> Basically, they've got, oh, have you been on the Kobayashi Maru yet? Oh, it's rubbish. You can't even win that thing is if it's a deadly kept secret and nobody's ever told about it. And then when you're first on duty in a starship and you're actually trying out for a sort of officer detail, 
they, you know, go right. Well, we're gonna, we've got a, a mission, and I'm actually going to put you on the bridge for this one. So you command the uh, the ship, and we'll we'll get that done. They put the ship into training mode, something they haven't told the young cadet about, and then they simulate that exact scenario and have the cadet go, "Oh shit!" and then pull out his phaser and shoot himself in the head. What have I done? That's um, it. We've lost too many cadets this way. <laughs> That's why they stopped doing that. It seems almost like an overly cruel initiation rite. I see, man. It's, it's hazing to the extreme. Yeah. I think they probably would have to tell them, but I, I suspect that it's got something to do with making sure that your potential captains have got just enough self-confidence in their abilities to command without it spilling over into uh, arrogance by seeing how they respond when it becomes evident that they cannot win wouldn't, wouldn't they have it so it's not ex- it's the same scenario but not exactly the same things keep happening during it yeah so even if it got out that oh this is what i did the simulation would change completely if you tried to tackle it that way mm. well they, they i don't think they'd have to even go that far there are plenty of video games where there are no win situations they mm. they just have to program it against you and no matter you just have what to go, oh this is a cut scene this yeah. is back <laughs> Oh, yeah. well, I'm supposed to die here. Oh, okay. Well, that's the, I've just pulled up the wiki entry on it, and like, it's the cadet has two options: endanger their own ship and lives, and try to rescue the crew, or leave the Kobayashi Maru to its certain destruction. Yeah. On the test, sir. Will you tell me what you did? I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Face death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Actually, it's not just uh, you know women and wives who are going to like this film uh, just because it's got sexy men in it. Um, people like uh, Paul Shotton, for example, never liked Star Trek much. I think he has a soft spot for uh, First Contact, but um, he enjoyed it, and his, his uh, mate who hates Star Trek enjoyed it. I have heard leveled at this over and over again. It's a good film, but it's not Star Trek, which is, I suppose, fair enough, because what they mean is Star Trek is this, and and they're referring to Gen 3 or everything prior to Gen 4. Uh, but what other aspects make this movie perfect for a wide audience? Bright and shininess mm-hmm. is quite... I mean, it look, it's a gorgeous film to watch. There's so much chrome all over the place. It's beautiful, lovely effects. I know people bitch about the lens flare that's all over the shop, but you know what? Deal with it. It's, <laughs> I've it's, got a whole section on lens flares coming up. <laughs> There's a giant screen in front of you. There's going to be a bit of lens flare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, it's, it, it is a lovely film to watch. So even if you're not a fan of any of the Star Trek series previously, mm. it, it's such a feast, a sumptuous feast for the eyes. I think it's a great example of the parent borrowing ideas from the children. Mm. It's taken a lot of concepts that have been introduced in Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that and Firefly, uh, just the way they shoot the battle scenes and the way they shoot scenes in space. It does have that documentary style that uh, Battlestar Galactica... Firefly kind of did it at first, but it was really Battlestar Galactica that popularised it and Mm. made sure that everyone else was doing it as well. And as an extension of that, I think it's just a lot more pacey um, and a lot more economical with time than any of the other Star Trek films. Mm. Um, A lot of the 
previous ones uh, took their time and were really methodical about their pacing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're making a blockbuster film, you really want to drag people along at a quick pace. And this is what this film does. It's very video gamer friendly as well. A lot of it, you, you could just take scenes out of it and chuck it in a Mass Effect universe, in all honesty. Very accessible to video gamers who've grown up with uh, with, with stuff like Emmy over the last, you know, five, ten years, whatever. It really reminded me of Mass Effect this time around. Uh, the very clean lines of everything and, and everything looking new and, um, the, the, the way the, yeah, and the way the, the alien races interact with each other and, mm. um, just the whole, the whole sense of it was, uh, was very reminiscent of Mass Effect, I thought. Which in ter- Mass Effect uh, has always been considered as kind of a conglomeration of you got Star Trek, Star Wars, Firefly, BSG. Yeah, it's it's it seems um, very much informed by BSG as well. It's weird because the game it's itself is rubbish by all accounts, and it apes Mass Effect and just looks like this tired collection of everything that's been in games for the past five years. Giles and I were, uh, had pre-ordered it and we're going to play through the whole thing, but it, it, we ended up sending them back still cellophane wrapped because it just it sounded disastrous. Yeah, Leon from Kane and Rince had to review that for his job. Um, <laughs> if look, Leon's pretty. He doesn't have extreme reactions to games very often. He hated that game. Yeah. So, yeah, avoid. Actually, let, let me just talk about lens flares. Of course, there's something to be said for them. Uh, off-putting as they are to many, and indeed, Abrams himself has admitted that sometimes it gets ridiculous. Uh, his pitch to the execs was that the future is so bright the screen can barely contain it. His combination of bright, shiny lights, constant movement of camera, and subject as in they're running all the time, and a screen shake literally achieved by smacking the camera repeatedly while filming, lend the movie a documentary style. Watch footage of the model of the Enterprise without these additions. Before you even start, the panels all over the CG model are left deliberately imperfect, giving it a man-made sensibility. Then lights are added and the flares are synthesized reactions to those lights, shining into a camera that isn't there. Then microscopic amounts of CGI dirt are added to what would be the lens. The overall effect orchestrated to feel like there is literally a cameraman hanging in space filming the ship. It often breaks frames so that you see most of but not all the Enterprise. This makes it feel unlike a model and implies scale on an unconscious level. If we were looking at something that big in real life within a certain distance, we simply wouldn't be able to take it all in in one go. As a result, while I have heard people complain endlessly about the story, virtually nobody bemoans the effects, which are delightfully tangible. This all ties in with Abram's habit of combining the fantastical with the mundane. A perfect example of the inverse of this is a drum set at the wedding in Star Trek Nemesis. It has bright yellow symbols made of some space-age material that looks unlike anything we would dream of substituting for simple bronze alloy. The eyes observe this normal-looking wedding with a fabricated substitute drum set to convince you you're looking at the future. And the message sent to the front of my mind, at least, is that looks cheap. In the car theft and destruction sequence, you get a kid in a slightly futuristic jacket driving in an antique 1960s Chevrolet Corvette with an unusual futuristic phone that has the recognizably mundane Nokia tune. He is pursued across the Iowa landscape, surrounded by fields that could belong to any era, pursued by a robot cop on a jet bike, while pounding out Sabotage by the Beastie Boys, released in 1994. 
The combination of artifacts from the past, technology from the future, and timeless setting told my brain this could be real. Now, those two scenes are incomparable. One is an action sequence, the other is clearly not. But both serve to introduce the average cinema viewer to a far-off year of 2379 and 2246, respectively. doesn't make sense in this film i have a list here and uh, if you guys want to name as many as you can i have some answers but not all okay right this is a big one for me i I love this film but this is like the equivalent of the arrows in lord of the rings for chris Um, (laughs) the inconsistency of the black holes really bothers me yeah but yeah go on carry on sometimes they behave like wormholes where they are a rip in space time allowing people to travel back in time Uh sometimes they are what we define a black hole as, which is a gravity well that just destroys everything it comes close to. Right. When it's fired into the center of a planet, it acts like a black hole. It acts like a singularity. Yeah. But for some reason, Nero and uh, Spock's prime ship are perfectly fine when they go through, even though a black hole would crush them, <laughs> crush them into a tiny little It would be a significant speck. A, a trillion miles long and one uh, atom thick. Yeah, it's just... Uh, I, I know this doesn't really explain anything. Maybe the supernova had something to do with right to cause the wormhole. Well, that, that, no. but, but that's another thing. If, if the... <laughs> The black hole leads to that other point in time. Wouldn't all the, you know, material from the supernova be sucked yeah. through the hole as well? So and then everyone in the past would get destroyed by a supernova. You killed the past with the future, you bastards! <laughs> Apparently, and this is there, um, I did hear something along these lines. It's to do with the point of origin of the black hole. If it's just in space and you have a ship that can navigate it, uh, then the Narada could fly into a black hole and get through. But because the black hole that kills the Narada at the end originates within the ship and crushes it from inside and does the same with the planet Vulcan, uh, it, it, you can't navigate through when your machinery is buggered. And also, it is stuff. all Borg anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> stuff in a bit, but yeah, that too. How can the Narada take out that many Starfleet ships? As we've been saying, it's Borg-related. Originally, uh, this is all comic stuff. I'll try and do it as quick as possible. Uh, (laughs) Here's the reason. You couldn't say all this in the film because people would go cross-eyed. It was a mining ship, and then for whatever reason, the Borg got hold of it and turned it into like a a project for for them. They they kitted it out with all kinds of stuff that made it effectively a techno-organic organism with um, a whole new kind of missile that could penetrate Starfleet shields and that's how it's able to take out the Starfleet ships. All it takes is one missile, which can go straight through the shield to cripple and scupper uh, Alliance ships. So that is how it can do it. <laughs> okay. You mean Federation ships? Did I say Alliance? You did. Yeah. Is yeah. that Mass Effect? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Firefly, technically. 
Shot sorry, yes, that too. Um, yeah, they're, they're all made of the finest of hand wavium. It's it's Borg related, and, and that's why the Narada is is so totally badass. There have been fairly justifiable questions on the forum: is how come the equivalent of uh, this and the picture put up was like a, a tug, a mining boat? <laughs> Take out this HMS Belfast or whatever the modern day equivalent is, but they don't explain that in the film because it would make people go cross-eyed. So uh, yeah, these, this is one of several things which doesn't get explained and really should have been in some codex somewhere uh, <laughs> maybe at the end of the film there's like little like little subtitles at the bottom of the screen going questions some questions you might need the answers to no you walk into the cinema you get handed a tiny little tablet <laughs> nice I think for a lot of us who are fans of the movie we take a lot of the things that don't make sense on faith mm. because it's part of the Star Trek universe and we're okay with that yeah. So a lot of the things that probably don't make sense to normal human beings <laughs> make sense to me. I don't know who that uns- insults. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it insults myself. That's all right, then. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's like, I, I'm, I'm happy with all this shit. That's great. But then if I've got like somebody else who, who, who this would be their first Star Trek experience, they're going, why has this happened? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? I would just be going, oh, you just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my biggest problems, this is probably not an issue that you're going to bring up, Alex, but why did they give all the explosive charges to the red to shirt? guy. I was wondering that this time. <laughs> Surely you go into this mission expecting somebody might die, so you spread the load. NASA double up. That's the thing they do. Maybe those were his charges, because he seemed like the kind of guy who might carry around charges. (laughs) (laughs) That's a narrative contrivance, though. It's like, oh, well, the whole thing... In all seriousness, the whole space jump is, is just a great bit of stuntery and a plan that doesn't work. The whole thing doesn't achieve anything towards the actual film. It's something for Kirk to do and to give Sulu something to do. See, for me, I have a very high suspension of disbelief, so it's only when I sit down and talk to someone who points out errors that I actually start to notice them. Yeah. Does everything have to work? Does everything have to make... No, not everything has to make sense, but does everything have to come to fruition? Things fail all the time. You try your best. It gave... You know, what else was Kirk going to do? Sit twiddling his thumbs? He's going to get into the action and try his best to save the planet. Sometimes I prefer not to have an explanation anyway. Otherwise, Spock could say at a later date, what the hell were you doing while I was... I had fat hands. (laughs) I couldn't do anything. It's got a tiny keyboard, and I mean really, really tiny. Go on and give it a go. (laughs) Happy Christmas, you fat-handed twat. While we're on the subject of the space jump, why did they not burn up on atmosphere? Different atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, Special okay, suits. Um, Special suits, right. Okay. <laughs> Actually, speaking of atmospheres, the ice planet Delta Vega next to the desert planet of Vulcan, like so close you can see the desert planet Vulcan, like massive in the sky, bigger than the moon. Different atmospheres. Different atmospheres. It's to do with a special kind of lichen. God, well, Alex, you just don't get it. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, Venus is really close to Earth, and yeah. Venus is like the equivalent of hell. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's not unbelievable. Yeah, you see Venus in the sky, it's the, the evening star. Also, yeah. um, you know, the North Pole, comparatively, is really close to the Gobi Desert. True. 
Yeah, yes. different atmosphere. Enterprise I... being built in Iowa as opposed to in space. They have, uh, like, shipyards. This Labor. is so that he can go and do that wonderful binary sunset. Na, 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 na. Hey, I tell I you, guess. one awesome bit about that scene is yep. that you have the greatest motorcycle in history. Oh, yeah. It's got no spokes. Exactly. <laughs> How much did you fucking want that? Badly. And he just gives it away. Yeah, that's yours, buddy. He's not coming back. <laughs> that's it. He's going to go to space and die. Sharon, uh, you were going to say something? Um, well, I was just wondering why in this sort of incredibly equal uh, space federation oh, thing, they do still have ridiculous uniforms for the women. That's because the women decided as a group that trousers were chafing. <laughs> I think they, they do have, have the option. option. I'm sure I remember Gayla wearing trousers. Yeah, yeah, no, Gayla actually does the, wear a, um, a, a, an ugly jumpsuit at one point. So I don't, I don't think it's compulsory. But in a position where that kind of clothes were optional, mm. I don't think anybody would actually wear them. <laughs> Speaking of Gayla, actually, there are two bits that were cut out of the final film. One where it expands on the fact that he has sent Gayla a email that he says. Could you open it at precisely 3.30 tomorrow, please? Precisely. It must be exactly right. And when she opens it, in the area of the Kobayashi Maru, it releases a virus into the system. So he effectively uses her to cheat, which makes him look like a total dick. And also that scene was cut in a different way to just prolong his swagger and make you go, you dick. And then later on, he goes and apologizes to Gayla, who's standing in the corridor. About what happened at Starfleet, the test and everything... I know it looks like I was using you or whatever and I'm sorry I really am and I just hope you'll forgive me you're not Gail are you? no Mm -mm. damn not only am I a wicked misogynist, but I'm also a casual racist. <laughs> no, no, not racist, just highly ignorant. Yeah, I said, Sharon said that was racist. I said, it's not racist, it's racially ignorant. He's a buffoon. He didn't mean it maliciously. He just, you know, all, all green people are the same, right? You're greenies. To be fair, there is a possible implication there that all women he's ever slept with would look <laughs> roughly the same to yeah. regardless of whether or not they were green. <laughs> Uh, back to things that don't make sense. Kirk, the stowaway cadet, advanced to captain within mere hours. This is explained <laughs> in a single sentence. When he goes to sit on the uh, chair, uh, everyone else goes, what the hell? And Sulu says, Pike made him acting officer. Like in this one sentence, Pike just said, uh, you're acting officer just in case um, Spock goes mental. And it's like, right, well, I, I guess he's captain then. Pike does seem to have this bizarre prescient faith in Kirk because I doubt very much it, the joke he makes about you must be really down on your recruiting quota I don't think that going around to correctional facilities and you know reform schools to pick up cadets is what they normally tend to do mm. let alone a guy who just got in a bar fight yeah, yeah. Uh, with but, their other cadets. Yeah, ultimately, Kirk has to get to be captain. And it's almost 
you could explain it as the timeline writing itself because Kirk actually ended up entering the academy way late. He was supposed to do it uh, years beforehand and uh, be a lot more adjusted. But it's almost like the time stream goes, come on, come on, and it makes uh, a, a series of apparent contrivances occur to get him into that chair because it's a constant and everything else is a variable. It's a fixed point in time yeah. to use something from a completely different thing. Turbo lifts. Uh, again, Mr. Plinkett complained about this and pointed out that in the original TNG episode, you see um, Picard and co. going in a turbo lift from the uh, shuttle bay to the bridge. And it takes ages and he goes... For like a minute or so, then stops and it goes... And it goes up, all the way up and then back across the bridge. Whereas in this, it's like, and Zachary Quinto just sort of goes, hmm. I think they were quite aware of that. Because <laughs> Zachary Quinto looks a bit impatient just <laughs> with how long it takes him to get up. It, these are turbo-turbo lifts. No, it actually has a narrative reason. As the shuttles were escaping, at the very beginning, there was scanning going on of the Narada. And the technology that they actually managed to bring back to Earth was able to propel forwards the technology of the time. So they made huge advances, which is why everything looks so shiny. It actually ties in with their weird time paradox thing. I just hmm. thought Apple took over the world. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's why turbo lifts are now really turbo lifts and not Mass Effect 1 turbo lifts. Oh, God. Steph's playing through Mass Effect 1 at the minute. It's just like, why are these things taking so long? Yes. In they question, appropriately relevant. Effects, they'll be that quick. That's it. When do they get to clean the bridge? Answer: Never. Then how is it, it so shiny? It's <laughs> new. They just took a. Oh, who wants to be the guy who takes off the plastic covering on the bridge? <laughs> he goes ooh and waits for that first single speck of dust to settle on the bridge. So. I've got visions of them having somebody coming around. Has anybody who's ever worked in an office stayed late? Yeah. Yes. I know, okay. And you're there trying to do stuff and people are hoovering under your desk and dusting around your keyboard. <laughs> no, I'm going to need more lemon pledge. No, that, that's for you to get. Super <laughs> advanced vacuum robot. Nanobots. It must be nanobots. Yeah, surely. I was going to say utility fog. They've got dust-sized <laughs> Roombas. They just individually take one little piece of dust and turn it into delicious fresh air. And another Roomba. Actually, let's talk about the bridge, because that was one of the, the, the most shiny, most um, uh, sun flare type areas. In, in fact, the, the bit where Kirk is trying to get an emotional rise out of Spock is really flared up. You can barely see them, there's so much light. <laughs> but what, what did you guys think of the bridge itself uh, relative to uh, older versions, to classic versions of the bridge? Um, I got the impression that the uh, the window in front of them was actually a window rather than in previous versions where it was just a TV screen where they mm-hmm. would bro- bring up cameras which I thought was massively impractical because there's a scene <laughs> in this movie where the, the glass cracks and they're all like panicking and go, oh my god, and I'm just thinking why would you have glass uh, like a big sheet of glass in space where if the slightest <laughs> hole forms, everything gets sucked out. Well, <laughs> it is a competitive. It's not glass. It's transparent aluminium. And it, but yet in generations, exactly what you're saying there happened, Josh. They crash the saucer section, and the glass just shatters inwards with the impact. 
as though they were just made out of glass, which is lunatic. I, I think maybe, maybe, that if the window did shatter, there's like a foom thing that clangs down. Does yeah. that make sense? A foom thing? I know what you mean. Yeah, like a, a giant a, shutter thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, a shutter. Airlock. Yeah, just um, get, get, or, or some sort of force field or something to prevent death. It being transparent aluminium so that you can see out. I never really got that the bridge was at the tippity-top of the Enterprise itself. For some reason, I thought it was actually under the saucer section. But no, if you actually look, there's like a dome at the top. When you could have like hundreds and hundreds of cameras mm. all over the ship, yeah. why would you have a window at all? It just seems like a massive... I know it's meant to be aluminium, but it acts like a window. Let's <laughs> let's not pretend. Well, that's um, why it's transparent. But it's just a massive weakness. As an enemy, all I've got to do is shoot the window, yeah. and then all the most important people are dead. There's a shield. Well, the shield didn't seem that effective in that scene where they suddenly had a heart attack because they thought, "Oh my god, gla- glass actually cracks." Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> I, I to agree, be fair, yep. that window is. When you look at the external shots, that window is very, very small and it's set right back over the saucer section. You would have to be the most amazing shot in the universe to hit it in space. It's like hitting a bullet with a smaller bullet with a blindfold on riding a horse. Again, in the inverse of Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, where absolutely everything was filmed in a green room with backgrounds and CG characters added later, the decision was made here to film as much as was humanly possible in real locations. Vasquez rocks in Los Angeles, the area Shatner fought the Gorn. By the way, whenever I talk about Captain Kirk, I always just call him Shatner. In the classic episode Arena, notably, the same outcrop Bill and Ted were flung from by their evil robot doubles from the future were employed as the landscape of Vulcan. They just took that rock and then they replicated it over and over again. Structures with striking architecture were filmed in rather than having to build enormous sets. A church doubled for the Vulcan Academy chambers, a library for the front steps of the Federation Academy, and a city hall for its assembly room. Factories were used for the unseen Klingon prison, and the Budweiser Brewery was employed for the bowels of the ship and its engine room, once again telling your eye that real people work in these real places. Ironically, while there is a great deal less scientific explanation involved with the theoretical technology than the TV series, because so much of this world we were seeing felt natural, this is, as a result, the least set-like, least creaky and model-based, most tangible, convincing Star Trek yet. Red Matter. Pretty much nothing makes sense about this stuff. The Not thing if you watch Alias. <laughs> the thing that's the, the silliest and oddest, actually, when... It cuts to the flashback of old Spock trying to deal with the supernova. He puts a tiny little bit of red matter into the canister, just like they did with Vulcan, and fires it into the center of the supernova to deal with it, which creates a black hole. However, he took it from a supply the size of a medicine ball. What, what do you need all that for? Surely they must have worked out how much they would have needed in this one little ship... The reason Nero's so angry, this is a bit of backstory, uh, is because the Romulans begged the Federation for access to the technology based around red matter so that they could save themselves. The Federation said no, ostensibly, because they didn't want to give Romulus this incredibly powerful weapon that could destroy worlds. They didn't trust them. And because they didn't trust them, Romulus was absolutely doomed. That's why Nero's so angry. That actually explains his character better than any one sentence of the uh, film. 
Mm. But they had all of that red matter in that ship. They didn't need all of it. They should, I mean, surely, like, it's a possibility that ship might get captured or destroyed and the red matter activated, creating a black hole that might suck in the entire universe. Which, again, when you get to the end of the film and all of the red matter is activated, mm. it's just about the same size as the regular black hole or the one that was in uh, that uh, destroyed Vulcan. That's because they all really... of the red matter gets sucked into the black hole. <laughs> Clever! They, they really underestimate how powerful a black hole is all the way through this movie. You can outrun like, towards, it. <laughs> towards the end, <laughs> it's just, towards the end when, like, they're trying to desperately escape the black hole and they just, um, release some cargo that explodes behind them and that's enough to get away. <laughs> oh, it's We're not their cargo, it's their freaking engines. Release it, the doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we are talking about a thing that is so powerful, light bends into it. It's the only thing that makes light change its direction. A couple of explosions, even a nuclear explosion, is not enough to get away. They should have but been this, dead. This is, this is antimatter and matter colliding together the biggest explosion in the universe it's not the biggest explosion in the universe though. it is there in is, the star trek there universe. is only one rule that actually outweighs uh, the the rules of physics that you're talking about josh and that is the rule that in a film if an explosion is behind you it propels you forwards and this is something nobody could argue with because it's happened so many times that we've seen proof <laughs> it doesn't it's that it will science. launch so much debris into your back that it will yeah, kill you it instantly. It doesn't incinerate you. No, 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 no. It propels you forwards. Uh, but you have to hold up your arms and go... <laughs> <laughs> and then when you go in the water, it's all right, because the water doesn't flash boil. So that's basically what happened to the Enterprise at the end of this film. Science, huh? Science, bitches! No, I couldn't believe it when the bartender told me who you are. Oh, my Captain Pike. Father's son. Can I get another one? For my dissertation, I was assigned to USS Kelvin. Something I admired about your dad. He didn't believe in no win scenarios. <laughs> sure learned his lesson. Well, it depends on how you define winning. You're here, aren't you? Thanks. You know, that instinct to leap without looking, that was his nature too. And in my opinion, some Starfleet's lost. Why are you talking to me, man? Because I looked up your file while you were drooling on the floor. Your aptitude tests are off the charts, so what is it? You like being the only genius-level repeat offender in the Midwest? Maybe I love it. So your dad dies, you can settle for a less than ordinary life. Or do you feel like you were meant for something better? Something special? Enlist in Starfleet. Enlist? <laughs> you guys must be way down in your recruiting quota for the month. Well, if you're half the man your father was, Jim, Starfleet could use you. You can be an officer in four years. You can have your own ship in eight. You understand what the Federation is, don't you? It's important. It's a peacekeeping and humanitarian armada. We done? I'm done. Riverside Shipyard. Shuttle for new recruits leaves tomorrow, 0800. Well, your father was captain of a starship for 12 minutes. He saved 800 lives, including your mother's and yours. I dare you to do better. Okay, so let us talk about the characters. James Tiberius Kirk, played by Chris Pine. I don't think they could have gotten anybody better to do it. 
he ca- I think he, for me he captures the the swagger and the obnoxiousness of Kirk <laughs> amazingly but also he does bring the sort of the nobility and the the heroism that Kirk has as well mm. and I just think he's he's an amazing casting choice I I, I, I was blown away by him I thought it was great I'm just so glad that he managed to capture the essence of the character without just doing a replication of uh, of the original performance of Kirk. Yeah, that's that's it, true. He, he he's he's being Kirk. He's not he's, being William Shatner. Exactly. Yes, mm. he's being a different interpretation of that character. And to be quite honest, I don't think William Shatner's portrayal would work for a modern audience. William Shatner. I love you, but you are just so over the top. He's kind of a caricature of himself now. Yeah. He is. And, and watch him, yeah. <laughs> Chris Pine reigns it in. He makes it much more organic and natural. I think as well the fact that the uh, the Star Trek dynamic, where it, where it is a Kirk and Spock story, is so much around the interplay between Kirk and Spock. The fact that Zachary Quinto played Spock how he did, if Pine had gone to the over... Shatner-like, over-the-top methods, um, then it wouldn't have worked. Jim, I don't want anything to happen to you. Something happened to her. Don't you feel all right? No, I don't feel all right. None of us feel all right. Can't you see what's going on? Yeah, no, they wouldn't have been compatible. No. It's a tough juggling act as well for uh, Pine, because it would be so easy to make Kirk unlikable. In fact, if you just left a few extra scenes in... Uh, the movie, Kirk, the overall feeling on Kirk would be a bit... Uh, but he's got it where it counts, and that really comes across. The way they described it is that while they were doing the casting calls, uh, there were people who could do Rebels, and there were people who could give orders and be captains, but no one apart from Chris could do both. I, I think that's what's important about that character. Mm. He has to be that rogue character who also can take control when necessary. He's, he's kind of like unique amongst sci-fi characters in that regard because usually you do have somebody who's one or the other. In a, in another sci-fi universe, Spock would be the commander and Kirk would be Han Solo. But yeah, yeah in this one, it's, it's, it's an interesting choice. I tell you who he really reminds me of actually is Mal. Yeah. Mm. That, that rebel but able to take command when necessary. Under penalty of court martial, I order you to explain to me how you were able to beam aboard this ship while moving at warp. Well, don't answer him. You will answer me. I'd rather not take sides. What is it with you, Spock? Hmm? Your planet was just destroyed, your mother murdered in not even upset. If you are presuming that these experiences in any way impede my ability to command this ship, you are mistaken. And yet you were the one who said fear was necessary for command. Did did you see his ship? Do you see what he did? Yes, of course I did. So are you afraid or aren't you? I will not allow you to lecture me about the merits of emotion. Then why don't you stop me? Step away from me, Mr. What is it like not to feel anger or heartbreak or the need to stop at nothing to avenge the death of the woman who gave birth to you? Back away from me. You feel nothing! It must not even compute for you. You never loved him. So, Zach Quinto as Spock. Now, um, I was looking for Spock's surname, being an idiot, and uh, I, I realized that Vulcans don't have surnames at all. There's nothing, there's no, like, son of Fundin thing that identifies Vulcans. And, Sharon, you actually gave a really great real-world possible explanation as to why. Well, 
my speculation is um, that the the whole point of Vulcan society is that they've set themselves up to be rid of anything that would cause negative emotions or um, it, it ends or emotions, any, any strong emotions in general. Yeah, yeah, but the point being that they. You know, they, they want to evolve along a certain route and they feel that emotion would hold them back in that. Now, one of the key things about human society that creates uh, the, the emotions that can really mess with your community's fabric is paternity. Um, and the idea that a, uh, a father will protect his own progeny over anybody else's and you know, paternal pride being um, a big factor in things like jealousy um, and, and anything that would, you know, create either sexual jealousy or, or demand for resources or anything like that. If you remove the idea of this is my child and he will carry on my genetic line um, in name, then theoretically you remove the need for that possessiveness because what a Vulcan does should be for the good of the Vulcan people in entirety. And Spock reinforces that with his the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few which is a, a fundamental part of who he is ironically the decision made by george kirk at the beginning would have been the same decision made by spock because he would have considered it logical hmm. I, I think the thing that i love about this movie uh, and this is true of everything star trek related with the original cast as well but i think they really emphasize it here is that Spock and uh, Kirk are really are two sides of the same coin in that they give each other what the other person needs. Mm. Kind of, When they're combined, they're almost like a Mary Sue. Like, individually, they're incredibly flawed, but um, as a partnership, they are absolutely formidable. Kirk is willing to do things that Spock isn't, and Spock is willing to do things Kirk isn't, and they... and. It's like that situation, you know, that old thing where uh, between me and my brother, we know everything in the world. Mm. Um, and it's very much the case with those two. Between the two of them, they have a solution for every problem. Yeah. This film masquerades as the classical sort of, you know, hero except comes under his father's mantle and rises up in the world and, and masquerades as being about James. However, it's actually about Spock. When you uh, people have said, "What is this film about?" It's, it just seems so pointless. There is so much that this film about, but what it really boils down to is the fact that Spock, in this more than any other portrayal of him, is a man of two worlds: Vulcan and Earth. He's been conflicted his entire life over the fact that he's of, of this mixed race, and he doesn't know which side to really. Uh, nurture in himself and it's the meeting of Kirk and it's the combination of their different personalities that allows him to embrace his Vulcan side and let Spock be Spock and it's almost like they've linked arms and they can now lean into these roles but up until that point Spock didn't know what to think or do after his mother has just died he's staggered because his human emotions are conflicting with his Vulcan calm and he has to go to Sarek to ask, what am I supposed to think here? And the fact that Sarek being wholly Vulcan gives that little I loved her speech. Why did you marry her? At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. You asked me once why I married your mother. 
protect her because I loved her. It, it, it kind of gives license to Spock to feel this and then to get over it and to actually to move forwards and, and decide, you know what, I'm going to be a Vulcan. And despite the fact that he also wants to help the last of his endangered species, he says that Earth is the only home he has left. What do you guys think of Spock himself, Zachary Quinto? I, he's fantastic. I love yeah. him in this. Are we just going to hyperbole here? Okay, right. Yes. Explain <laughs> why is he fantastic? I'm so glad that Zachary, uh, Zachary Quinto managed to uh, nab a role that really demonstrates his acting ability because I don't think heroes did that. The thing that I really respect about his performance is that it is really reined in. Yeah. It's not a big over the top. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, um, it's, it's not an over the top performance like a Joker in The Dark Knight where that's a really big and loud performance. It's a very quiet, a very subtle performance where, um, the detail is just in small expressions and just, you, you know, tiny, uh, adjustments to the way he's speaking that speak volumes. Um, yeah. it's a really controlled and intense performance. Spock was always my favourite character of the um, the original series, uh, Star Trek. And it's all in the way he shows the control of the emotions. But you can see it all under the surface. And Leonard Nimoy did such a fantastic job of that. Um, in the, the, for, the, for the most part, he was very logical and very rational and how he approached things was always calm and controlled. But when you had the, uh, the few episodes where his emotions were a huge factor, um, he was able to do that as well. And that versatility, I think, was always very impressive to me. Um, being able to handle emotionless and emotional and make them both seem genuine. Mm. And I think Quinto did the same thing. Spock's the one that all the terrible things happen to in this film. Uh, you know, the terrible thing that happens to Jim happens before he's even born. It's, he spends the rest of his life dealing with it. Everything else is, is heaped upon Spock. It's, it's his journey, as it were. The unexpected side of it as well, because he was on a, a trip already. You know, he had decided against the Vulcan Academy. He had gone to the, the Federation instead. And so he knew what his life was going to look like for the next few years. The only thing he wasn't sure about was reconciling Vulcan human. But it was logical to just keep doing what he was doing. Nobody expected that Vulcan would be destroyed, that his mother would be taken from him before his eyes. Him trying to cope with that and deal with that as some of the absolute emotional core moments of this film. And let's just pop to Uhura at this point, because she is, again, pretty much defined by her, the intimacy of her relationship with Spock, because everything else, she's just talking back to uh, Jim and telling him to go sniff another tree. Yeah, it's quite funny when you do put two and two together and, and mm -hmm. realise that, Actually, Spock and Uhura, they are a bit of a thing, innit? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. whoa! It was more scary for the uh, makers of the film than destroying Vulcan. Vulcan was nothing compared with this. I'm understanding that um, this is actually a reference to the fact that originally it was Uhura and Spock who were meant to kiss mm. in that fabled episode and not Kirk. First on-screen uh, TV interracial kiss. Mm, I, I don't know if this would really piss off hardcore Star Trek fans because it is a reference to their original series. So. Well, there's a practical application in that Uhura has to 
No, she doesn't have to be involved with one of the crew, but it gives a lot more weight to the idea of relationships breaking out within the crew if they're between major crew members. Yeah. And it could be with Sulu and one of the other male crew members. They wanted to play it safe for this first one and not have um, John Cho go, Hello! But obviously it can't be Kirk and one of the female crew members, because Kirk has to be the young buck shagging alien green women, and it has to be constantly available. But... Spock, in a relationship, suddenly you've got more dimensions to his character. And the the screams of, No! No! From Trekkies everywhere must have been deafening. But it has kind of unlocked both Spock and uh, Neota, who, especially with uh, who, didn't really have much to do before. I think it's quite interesting that he formed this relationship before he had this Mm. revelation... An acceptance of his human Vulcan side. The fact they started their relationship with a student, no less. Yeah. And he is considerably older than her and older than yeah. looks as well. Leia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nothing about it seems logical. Logical. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like he's perving on her. If anything, <laughs> it's almost like she's decided, look, you know what, Spock, you are a worthwhile person and I want to be close to you. There's a wonderful moment when she's holding him in the lift. It's not romantic. It's just intimate. She says, what do you need? Which is such an unusual phrase to be in an action film. What do you need? That is something that people don't say to each other unless they've been together for a while and they are actually, they're on a similar level. And then when he says... I need you to, uh, like the rest of the crew, to continue performing admirably. It's the sort of the pause and the nod of the head and, okay. Uh, Zoe Saldana was, uh, at that point, picturing this whole big thing in her head about what had actually happened to Spock and what he must be feeling at that point. So she really got into the moment, and she sells that moment so well. It's almost like nothing else in the film is as important as that. So it's not that she's defined by her relationship with Spock, But seeing her in that moment, you are really aware of what kind of a person she is. of that is the fact that it like you say it's the intimacy that sells it it's not a relationship that begins in the course of the film it's not about them falling for each other or you know there's the the whole sort of flirty introductory bit which she does have with scott with um uh, Scotty, uh, <laughs> I like <laughs> Sorry. Miss Shepard. Something's <laughs> <That was> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> which she does have with Kirk in the bar. There's that kind of spark of, I'm going to hit on you, I'm going to tell you to fuck off, etc., etc. You could um, handle me. That's an I'm going I'm going to grab your boobs. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to give you a cheeky smile to camera. They, <laughs> thankfully, they didn't have the honk-honk sound effect, because that would have been beneath Ben Burt. A little mm. bit, yeah. But the fact that the way she interacts with Spock is very much that they know each other well. Mm-hmm. And he obviously knows her well enough not to argue with her over that whole thing about which ship she gets assigned to. Actually, yeah, that, that's a very nice little scene that once you actually do realise that they are in, in, in a relationship and you look back at it and it's just like, ah, okay. <laughs> now I can see why you capitulated so quickly there, Spock. Well did done. I not show exceptional oral sensitivity? Yes, you, you were, did. You were exceptionally oral that, sensitive. That is basically this film's equivalent to, remember that sex you were going to have ever again? Ever again. again. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, speaking of moments in the shuttle bay, Mr. Carl Urban, who came out of nowhere for me, to be one of the absolute stars of this film. I, I'd always liked Bones anyway from, from seeing the bits of him in the uh, Star Trek films. And I'd been getting a lot of Bones in the previous week running up to it, seeing all of them in a row. Stop it. And right. um, I think one of the best Bones ones is actually um, Search for Spock. Because that's where he gets to do quite a lot of, uh, of, of acting and, and, like, you know, he's got Spock inside of him. Stop it. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. And so, yeah, you get you get that conflict, and I really, really love um, DeForest Kelly's performances there. It's possible that of all the performances, this one's the most I'm totally going to do DeForest here. Uh, but uh, when Carl Urban comes on, who has not previously been shown to be massively funny, pretty much everything he says is hilariously delivered. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just remembering that whole scene, and it's just like, this is bloody amazing. <laughs> I don't need a doctor, need, damn it, I am a doctor. You need to get back to your seat. I had one in the bathroom with no windows. I suffer now. from aviophobia. It means fear of dying. Sir, for your own safety, buy. sit down, or else I'll make you sit down. Fine. Thank you. This is Captain Pike. We've been cleared for takeoff. I may throw up on you. I think these things are pretty safe. Pander to me, kid. One tiny crack in the hull and our blood boils in 13 seconds. Soul flare might crop up, cook us in our seats. And wait till you're sitting pretty with a case of Andorian shingles. See if you're still so relaxed when your eyeballs are bleeding. Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Well, I hate to break this to you, but Starfleet operates in space. Yeah, well, I've got nowhere else to go. The ex-wife took the whole damn planet in the divorce. Left is my bones. Jim Kirk. Coy. Leonard. I think it was you, Alex, who said that uh, Carl Urban had just been pottering about in re- crappy film after crappy film after Lord Dude. of the Rings. <laughs> Although, actually, Dread is awesome. I will say, I really like Dread. Well, Dread was after uh, Star Trek. Yeah, But, uh, like, films like Riddick, where he was one of the main antagonists. Oh, he was as well. 
And oh, the, it's just, sorry, the Chronicles of Riddick, the new one's called Riddick. Yeah, yeah, and he was just, he was just there. Like that film was bad, but his performance in that film was pretty bad as it's well. Like furniture than a person. Yeah, but then just in this film, he comes alive. It's like he suddenly decided, okay, now I'm going to try. And of course, now he gets offered loads of really awesome roles. Now that's what happens when you act, Carl. Well done. Um, <laughs> well, he was actually invested. I think he's he's quite a big Star Trek fan, isn't he? Yeah, actually, yeah, he, yeah. he was watching the original series with his son when he got he got the part. He's like, yes. Um, actually, the the line the wife took everything from me in the divorce only left me nothing but my bones. He came up with that pretty much on the day, and that explains a conversation that never happens where Kirk asks him, "Why are you called Bones?" <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I am aware that doctors have been called sore bones for centuries now. That was always just the reason I assumed, but it's nice to have a bit more of a character reason. Okay, so Hikaru Sulu. Doesn't really get much to do in this one. Played by John Cho, one half of Harold and Kumar who get the munchies. See, I like John Cho. I think he, he does Sulu very well. I mean, there's not a huge amount of stuff to work with with Sulu again. It's, yeah. it's, you know, he, he, the, everybody remembers Sulu from the original series in that bit where he gets sort of kind of a bit possessed, takes his top off and then runs about with swords. <laughs> and awesomely, they referenced it in the movie yeah, when they do when they do the um, the, the 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 jump, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, that is the best sword ever. But the 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 few times he's on screen, he's great. He's Sulu, and he does it really, really well. Uh, again, really, really well. Is a uh, you've got to say why? I did okay. He. Oh man, sorry. We make you the, work on this podcast. God damn you, sir. I know. I'm sorry. I would say just, I don't think he does really, really well. I think he does the best of the material he's given. True. That's and he's not better. given a lot. He's he, got that fun does, little bit of leaving the parking brake on at the beginning yeah. of business. <laughs> he's got kind of an understatedly funny approach. Yeah. And the fact that he he's one of the characters, along with Chekhov, who sort of emphasises the fact that these guys are not far out of their final exam. They're still yeah. pretty young. They still make very basic mistakes sometimes the disconnect which kind of adds to the um the peril because you know that they could at any time cock up mm. well, well Chekhov says i'm 17 at one point like jesus christ he's like doogie Howser. he must have started when he was yeah. 13 he's just that smart i suppose that does speak highly for his intelligence all ships ready for work so course for vulcan aye aye captain course laid in maximum warp Punch it. Lieutenant, where's Helmsman McKenna? He has longworms, sir. He couldn't report to his post. I'm Hikaru Sulu. And you are a pilot, right? Very much so, sir. I'm, uh... I'm not sure what's wrong here. Is the parking brake on? No. Have you uh, disengaged the external initial dampener? Uh. Ready for warp, sir. Let's punch it. The disconnect for me with uh, Sulu himself is uh, John Cho doesn't have George Takai's voice. George Takai has one of the most memorable, wonderful, rich, deep... Oh my. Personality filled 
repeatedly on animated shows, voices out there. And John Cho just sounds like an average guy. I, I don't know what I wanted to see or hear. Like, I mean, it's just that obviously, uh, Urban's doing like a proper, like, uh, voice here and, and everyone else seems to be sort of doing their character. And Sulu is just very sort of understated. I don't know if I wanted him to just go, Hello, I'm George Takei. Recently, I've been troubled to hear comments made by former NBA All-Star Tim Hardaway, who said, I hate gay people. Let it be known, I don't like gay people. I'm homophobic. As a gay man and a human being, I was shocked and saddened. But I want you to know, Tim, on behalf of gay people everywhere, that despite your ugly words, we don't hate you. As a matter of fact, we like you. We like you very much. We particularly like your large, powerful cats. Your smooth, chocolatey head glazed in man sweat. I'll keep my eyes on you. And let it be known, one day, when you least expect it, I will have sex with you. <laughs> and like just this voice coming out of this little guy. But there is definitely potential for him in the future, and obviously a bit more Sulu stuff will be good. But this wasn't his movie. They just sort of kind of wanted to get him into place as a piece. Pavel Chekhov, insane. Okay, God, right. I'm going to hell. And... Why do you do you, do you like Chekhov? Do you like? Yeah. Would you like him to show you his nuclear vessel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, no, uh, it's play, nuclear. Played by Anton Yelchin, who uh, was in Fright Night, which was actually extremely good. Um, I, I can mean, do that. I can do it. I can, I can do, do it. it. <laughs> he was very good at being frantic. Yeah. Ensign authorization code nine five Victor Victor two. Authorization not recognized. Ensign authorization code. Nine five, Victor Victor two. Again, not not much time on screen, but what he what time he did spend was was entertaining, and the whole the the, the franticness of him trying to lock onto their signals. Yeah, and he runs was, well. So I'm I'm hoping that they that the and I don't want to call them lesser characters, but I'm hoping that they are the support other support crew. The support crew. They're going to get honest. more time on screen. Yeah, uh, and they get to build themselves up a bit more. I, I like how um, when uh, Yelchin gets really frantic, he starts uh, swearing in Russian. He, uh, he says oh, at one point, Yo mayo, which literally means holy fuck. And apparently they went mental in, in Moscow when they saw that in the screening. I think that kind of ties in with his his youth, though. Again, it, it sort of... He, he reacts like a kid to mm. some of the... the over-the-top things that are happening. There, there isn't that sort of command capability coming across very much. Here's the thing, though. Um, he was supposed to be like Davy Jones back in the day. He was the young one, right? Mm. But when I first saw Chekhov, it was the 1979 picture, the motion picture. Uh, and he was well older. So everything that really defined him as a character had been sort of has, had evaporated, and he was just yet another uh, sort of you know approaching middle aged guy, you know younger than the rest of the crew, but still getting considerably older. So it became more about his funny accent. I'd, I have a difficulty getting a bead on Chekhov up until Star Trek 09 when I realised, oh no, he's the Wonderkind. There is a bit when Scotty 
uh, is in the on, on the first on the bridge, and the, the the lights are shining in the cameras. And you guys look out for this next time you watch it. Spock says to him, "Are you a member of the Federation?" And he says, "Yes, I am." Have you got a towel? It cuts straight back to um, Quinto trying to be as angry as he possibly can, and obviously on his face he is just keeping back, completely corpsing and cracking up. And if you actually watch the bloopers, he did corpse and crack up over and over again. So watch it that next time and just see how difficult it was to try to be fuming with Vulcan rage. How did you manage to beam aboard this ship? You're the genius. You figure it out. Is that tap? Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you a member of Starfleet? Yes. Can I have a towel? Under... <laughs> I order you to answer the question, how are you able to board a... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't just want to go ahead and assume that's a reference to hitchhikers, but it seems like the sort of thing Simon Pegg would want to reference, even on the sly. <laughs> uh, I would like to think that. That's very cool. And also Keenser, played by Deke Roy, his little friend. I didn't know he had a name. Oh, no, he's got a name. Deke, he? You don't eat anything. You can eat like a bean, and you're done. Also, his delivery is very natural, so even if his accent is ever so slightly not absolutely spot on, uh, it still comes across as a person talking rather than an actor acting. I think this is a case where the actor, Simon Pegg, actually does more with what he's given. Because when you really look at the, you know, the screen time he's given yeah. and the material he's given, it's not that much. But he really makes an impression really quickly, mm. um, more so than a lot of the other characters, more so than uh, uh, Sulu or anyone else. Sulu's actually on screen longer than Scotty, yeah. but Scotty makes a far bigger impression. And I, I'm, I'm just really impressed with what Simon Pegg managed to do with yeah. so little material. You realise how unacceptable this is? Fascinating. Why? Okay, I'm sure you're just doing your job, but could you not come a wee bit sooner? Six months I've been here, living off starting protein nibs and the promise of a good meal. And I know exactly what's going on here, okay? Punishment, isn't it? Ongoing for something that was clearly an accident. You are Montgomery Scott. You know him. Hey, that's me. You're in the right place. Unless there's another hard-working, equally starved staff the officer around. Me. Get it. Shut up. You don't eat anything. You can eat like a bean and you're done. I'm talking about food. Real food. But you're here now, so... Thank you. Where is it? You are, in fact, the Mr. Scott who postulated the theory of transwarp beaming. That's what I'm talking about. How do you think I wound up here? I had a little debate with my instructor on the issue of relativistic physics and how it pertains to subspace travel. He seemed to think that the range of transporting something like a, like a grapefruit was limited to about 100 miles. I told him that I could not only beam a grapefruit from one planet to the adjacent planet in the same system, which is easy, by the way, I could do it with a life form. So... I tested it on Admiral Archer's prize beagle. Well, I know that, Doc. What happened to it? I'll tell you when it reappears. <clears throat> I don't know. I do feel guilty about that. What if I told you that your transwarp theory was correct? That it is indeed possible to beam onto a ship that is traveling at warp speed? I think if, if that equation had been discovered, I'd have heard about it. The reason you haven't heard of it, Mr. Scott, is because you haven't discovered it yet. Are you from the future? Yeah, he is. I'm not. Well, that's brilliant. Do they still have sandwiches there? And it's just like, even with that single, like, that, that single little fact, you get a, an awful lot more about the character of Scotty yeah. than you would do from watching, you know, a few episodes of the original series. He also buys the whole time displacement thing remarkably quickly as well. Hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, right. So he's at no problem with thinking fourth dimensionally. And uh, you, you, you believe him as a genius, just he, one who gets distracted easily. He, he comes across as... Like, 
you know, like a typical engineer, somebody who's really intelligent but doesn't mind getting their hands dirty. And, like, you know, like Tony Stark is, sort of. A very different character, but the same kind of, I want to get in there and mess about with the mechanical parts, not somebody who's just uh, staring at a clipboard and, you know, checking uh, statistics. It's also similar to his performance in Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. 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 He gets excited by... Machines and mechanics and yeah. vehicles. What's that? Your equation for achieving trans warp beaming. Out of it. Imagine that. It never occurred to me to think of space as the thing that was moving. You're coming with us, right? No, Jim. That is not my destiny. Your destiny. The other Spock is not going to believe me. Only you can explain Under what that's happening. Under no circumstances can he be made aware of my existence. You must promise me this. You're telling me I, I, I can't tell you that I'm following your own orders? Why not? What happens? Jim, this is one rule you cannot break. To stop Nero, you alone must take command of your ship. How? Over your dead body? Preferably not. However, there is Starfleet Regulation 619. 619 states that any command officer who's emotionally compromised by the mission at hand must resign said command. So you're, you're saying that I have to emotionally compromise you guys? Jim, I just lost my planet. I can tell you, I am emotionally compromised. What you must do is get me to show it. Hi then, laddie. Live or die, let's get this over with. Come with me, go on. Coming back in time, changing history, it's cheating. A trick I learned from an old friend. Live long and prosper. Okay, well, you know what? Let's talk about Leonard Nimoy right now, shall we? Uh, because uh, he's one of the emotional uh, touchstones of the actual film itself. He has so much gravitas. Only, like, the most experienced actors kind of have that. Just that ability to just talk, and they become the focal point of yeah. uh, everything on screen. Um I mean, Zachary Quinto's great, but when Le- when Le- Leonard Nimoy's on the screen with him, it- it's clear who's... Uh, who's been around the block, um, not just in terms of uh, uh, knowing that character, but just as an actor, uh, yeah. Leonard Nimoy knows what he's doing. Private Spock is now just this pure source of wisdom for this universe. Because yeah. he's literally, even though what's happened has changed the course of things, there's still so much he can contribute the point where he says, um, I am emotionally compromised. It's a brilliant way of showing that it doesn't matter that Vulcan being destroyed didn't happen to Spock in his life up to this point. He still has the capacity to feel these emotions deeply. And that even though he's gone through his life far more balanced than uh, Zachary Quinto's Spock is right now, he can still be have his heart broken, let's mm. face it, and feel the, his world drop away. He's already lost um, 
Kirk, who, who would have died years and years beforehand in that particular um, timeline. Sorry, how old is Spock Prime meant to be at this point? Oh, He's 155 oh, yeah? in 2387. And he looks it. He's got this wonderful, craggy old face. He gives it a sense of, uh, of gravity and weight and time and that the idea that this is something that's flowing forwards, but also he enables this adventure to take off properly and for, for us to accept it. It, it required the, the blessing of, of the previous generation. Captain Christopher Pike, played by uh, Bruce Greenwood as well. Is, I suppose he's sort of standing in for an old Kirk, actually, isn't he? He's kind of like, you know, Kirk as at the best he possibly could be and uh, trying to inspire the young to actually make more of themselves. So it's kind of they, they two-hand it through to, um, to, to the new generation. He works really well as someone that Kirk should aspire to be. Yeah, This yeah. is Father how you figure. imagine Kirk would be, you know... Uh, 30 years from now when he's experienced and he's learned that his arrogance can actually take him to horrible places and he's learned to rein it in a bit um, although Kirk was still cocky up to the point where he died true enough he's still got that kind of that the I don't like to lose thing that's still absolutely prevalent throughout every point in Kirk's life he doesn't um, it's almost like that. that's a vital lesson that he has not yet learned yeah, it's it's ultimately it's a character weakness, uh, inability to accept that certain things are beyond your control, and it's actually been a source of, of major amounts of characterization for him throughout the series. Bruce Greenwood played John F. Kennedy in Thirteen Days, and there's a wonderful teaser trailer for Star Trek, which twins it up with that time of uh, that era in American history from Kennedy, sort of you know, sort of enabling the uh, the American arm of the space race. And it's it's linked with sort of you know going off into the stars. So you've got Greenwood there. He seems so steady and so sure that what he's doing is the right thing. Thirty seconds, Ben Connor. Astronauts report it feels good. Two minutes twenty-five seconds. The eyes of the world now look into space. Godspeed, John Glenn. The eagle has landed. by Nero it just everything feels wrong about that like he's you know he's not going to give this thing up and uh, at that point he's become Morpheus as well and Nero is Agent Smith saying I must have the codes to the mainframe 
On to actually Nero, while we're talking about that, I did uh, explain a bit about his character and the, the greater depth that they could have gone to in that. But as he stands in the film, he is its weakest point because he's so maniacal and angry and won't listen to reason. And they're, they're riffing on Khan in the same way as they were riffing on Khan in uh, Star Trek Nemesis. He's He's got a vendetta and he's going to carry it out no matter what. But they never take just a few sentences to deepen that to give it a sense of I've actually thought about this if I go to Romulus right now if I and get them to evacuate the planet with well over a century's leeway there can be all out of harm's way instead of finding a way to advance his own culture he's decided to destroy others yeah I mean he has he's ha- he has the red matter technology on his ship mm. Well, the thing so, is, he waited 25 years to get that red matter technology. But, yeah. like, even still, why is he wasting his time? Like, mm. why why wouldn't you just go straight to Romulus and go, everyone get aboard? Well, not everyone, but, you know, try and get rally the ships and of Romulus to get them the hell yeah. out of there. Yeah, he, he has the most advanced ship in the universe at that time. Yeah, he could convince them somewhere or another. Yeah. Or create a black hole himself and just go, look at that. Am I lying? But it doesn't matter what excuses can be come up with to explain away this particular character flaw, this particular omission in the character. Because the average person would be asking it anyway, it's like they've already lost this particular battle with the character to try and explain that he actually does feel justified and righteous. And there isn't that sense. He's not like the operative in Serenity, and the other thing is, of course, that Eric Banner's affecting an American accent, which is not natural to him, and he just sounds like every other bad guy. <laughs> which is not as scary as... It, has anyone seen Chopper? Yeah. Just doing his Australian accent would have been really scary if it just been, you know, really dedicated, but almost a little bit friendly with it. And like, yeah, I'm going to blow up the Federation. I'll give you 20 seconds to produce some cash, or I'll shoot you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, all right? Cash, no. Robbo? No cash. One, two, hey, three, no cash, mate. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine sit down, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. It's going to happen. You have to be, you know, gone and out of the universe so that Romulus can survive. I don't know why. That wouldn't have made it in. They were playing it safe. But uh, it would have made him more like, oh my god, he's out of his gourd. And less like, you know, shouty Saturday morning villain. He's not quite Megatron. They do sort of explain it, but um, not enough. Captain Nero, the Vulcan ship has been taken. The drill has been destroyed. Fuck! Fuck! Yeah, it, it, just for me, there's too many logical inconsistencies. Even if you could s- explain it away, oh, well, he's gone insane, it just, it still doesn't work for me. That insane? I mean, and nobody's... Yeah, nobody's trying to stop him. him as well, yeah. I think the essential difference between him and Khan um, is that Khan has got a crew member who queries what he's doing, mm-hmm. and nobody ever really does that with Nero, so it's... There's no reflection on the fact that his plan is actually irrational. Mental even and, to them, yeah. And, no. yeah. 
they're all just as mental as he is or, or scared of him, but they don't go into that either. He was supposed to get picked up by the Klingons just after the Kelvin had crashed into him and spend 25 years in a Klingon prison colony, which bore a striking resemblance to the one in Star Trek VI. Uh, then he escaped and got back on the Narada, which explains the enormous gap of time and years, because you've got to wait for the boys to mature and, and become men at that point. But they don't explain that. They just imply that he's just been waiting in space for 25 years, twiddling his thumbs. Also, originally, he took a vow of silence, which is why he doesn't say anything when the <laughs> other captain comes on board and then just stabs him with a spear. Shouting's all right, apparently. Uh, it's just like that too many ideas all mixed up when they could just have had a really great this is who Nero is this is what defines Nero at the beginning instead it's somewhere in the middle when he's talking to Christopher Pike and and that's where they could have slipped in the making you relate to this guy a little bit more and that he's thought of all the possibilities and options and that he's seeing things in the biggest possible picture no matter what he does his planet's still doomed so the only thing he can do is to create a Romulus free of uh, Federation control and then maybe they can save themselves. Instead, it's the exact inverse and he has the smallest frame of yeah. looking at things. If I do this, everything will be okay. That'd be interesting as well because um, if he's thinking about it biggest picture, he's giving Spock logic to go up against and Spock has to go, well, my logic's better than lo- your logic. That makes it more tricky. But didn't happen yeah Nero's not too fantastic and, and we can only hope that there are better villains on the horizon so uh, Winona Kirk played by Jennifer Morrison it's not really made clear what happened to her uh, although at the beginning mm. she's actually from the sounds of it shacked up with George's brother yeah and uh, that's uh, something that wasn't made entirely clear the the car that um, uh, young James Tiberius Kirk steals isn't actually his dad's brother's car. It's his dad's car. It's George's car. So when he destroys it, it's kind of like a rites of passage thing. Speaking of which, actually, you know that boy at the beginning that he drives past and shouts something at? Yeah. That's his brother. His brother has just been told to get the hell off the farm by their cruel uncle. That, that prompted Jim, who was cleaning the car, to take it and go, sod it, I'm going to wreck this thing. Oh. Yeah. I had no idea. Check the deleted scenes. These are all things they took out because for pacing, basically. You know, you were talking about how great, well-paced it was? Yeah. These are the casualties. I could take a director's cut of this, definitely, or an extended cut. Yeah, Sharon, I'm looking at the uh, Memory Alpha, which is the... Um basically the, 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 wiki. the Star Trek wiki. Yeah. And um, it does say that um, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orki have said that Winona Kirk was a Starfleet officer, so... Yeah, yeah that's why she's on that ship, yeah. way out there. Oh, the other thing is um, that the Narada turning up uh, induced panic and contractions early. Kirk was supposed to be born in Iowa a week or so later. That's one of the things that uh, that they automatically started changing history there. Hmm. Uh, I've got a little final list here of can you point out any subtle bits that most people might miss. Uh, the USS Kelvin is named after... Anyone? Kelvin, the scientist who invented heat? No. Uh, easy. <laughs> I think heat existed before. No, 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 no. He invented it all himself. No, uh, it's... In his shed? It's J.J. Abrams' grandfather, the man who inspired him and made him want to be a filmmaker. He puts the word Kelvin in every one of his movies. It was one of the, it was the gas station in Super 8. Uh, so watch out for Kelvin. Um, that, to me, kind of defines the movie because it's about family and you, you know, the friendships that you form that become your family. And the, you know, the 
the Enterprise crew are the family. J.J. Abrams, we haven't really talked about him much. He's not the brightest spark in the in the, the, the directing pantheon right now. If you listen to him on the commentary, he's just a fun guy. He's not a major Star Trek fan. He's a big Star Wars fan. He's not a super geek. He just knows what's dynamic and what, what looks great. And he's just, he's just a lovely chap. But he needs um, smart script writers to make sure that he has something which uh, appeals to geeks as well on as many levels as possible uh, and most of the time he tends to pick guys who can really write scripts as well I, I, I saw a, um, a YouTube video where somebody was angry about um, uh, him being picked for the Star Wars films because he has a reputation for making mostly only okay at best films I cannot agree with that at all every single one of his films I thought was absolutely kick ass not the best films in the world just really really great I'm trying to think of a film that I didn't like that he's made. I, I pretty much liked all of them. Mm. Um, the only thing that, you know, puts a sour mark on his CV for me is his association with Lost. But <laughs> I, I know I'm in the min, uh, minority opinion on that show, but never mind. I think a lot of people hated the fact that it, um, at least very few people go, oh, the end of Lost, that was brilliant. What a payoff. I've never heard that sentence before, ever. Yeah, but, like, I I don't understand what you were expecting, because everything... It's just stream of consciousness. It's just... (laughs) There's a horse. Any explanation? No. At that point, people were were just too invested to stop watching. I don't, I don't understand that. When you, when the, when it seems like there isn't a plan, you get off, you get off because it just, it just seemed like that show was destined to crash and burn. I, it, I some people would argue it didn't, but it never felt like there was a plan. But anyway, they're off finished. topic. Then just sort of end and uh, you, you work it out. Oh, did it? End of season four. Um, but yeah, the, the the premise of um, him directing a Star Trek film written by the guy who wrote Toy Story 3 sounds brilliant. Couldn't be happier. Really just chuffed about that. J.J. Abrams has a mystery box that he keeps that his grandfather gave him and he's never opened it because he prefers to have the mystery of it than actually know what's in there. Then his grandfather taught him a valid lesson. Good chap. Good old Mr. Kelvin. Okay, uh, the M- image of AL is stretched. This is something you wouldn't normally notice, but it's like trying to put a widescreen image onto a TV that's not used to widescreen. So it's like they're, they're sending out a signal that ships of the day would be able to receive that, but because it's 187-odd years in the past, they, they're just sort of translating the signal in a weird, stretchy fashion, which makes it seem like it shouldn't be there, which I think is a great little touch. Handrails. Anyone notice them around the ship? Okay, cool. Every time, well, that's just a little thing. Every time they, you know, get flung about in the TV show, they decided that they were like, you know what, let's put handrails there because you would need handrails. The amount of, like, every episode we're going to get thrown about the place and just falling onto a big boxy computer console covered in buttons that will make the Enterprise explode, probably best to just grab a handrail instead. Oh, J.J. Abrams himself voiced the robot cop. (laughs) That's cool. Speaking of voices, uh, the uh, Romulan who says, Sir... If you ignite the red matter, um, and then gets cut off by uh, uh, Nero going mental at the very, very end, Quill Wheaton. Actually, yes, oh. I've heard that. I've heard that before. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, Majel Roddenberry, I hope I pronounced her name correctly there, the... Uh, Majel. Majel, sorry. The wife of uh, Jean Roddenberry traditionally did a lot of computer and ship voices. I believe she also played the nurse in the original Star Trek. She voiced the computer in this uh, last film and she sadly she died before the film was even completed. But they, they got her there to help see in the new generation. And she, she loved what was going on with her. So... Um, that's all the blessing most fans would really need. Oh, and one final thing, and this is what I love about the, the film itself. As well as all these location shoots that are held back on the budget by going somewhere practical that's already got a wonderful structure there, um, they tried tumbling them through the air for the airdrop sequence, and everyone was getting sick, and it was really dangerous, and they could only do it for a few minutes at a time because the blood kept rushing to their head. And in the end, does anyone know how they did this one, where they're flying through the air? Go on. They, they got a big sheet of reflective mylar out into a parking lot. They stood on what was effectively a mirror. The camera was above them, and so you could see the sky beneath their feet. <laughs> and then JJ ah. just whacked the camera repeatedly. <laughs> it seemed like they were shaking. And, uh, and then, you know, when they were tumbling through the air, Mr. Cho and Mr. Pine just cuddled and rolled around on the mylar. <laughs> and that was the time when uh, George Dekai visited. Hello. You have missed out one thing. Oh, yeah, no, go for it, yeah. The 12-minute thing. Okay, so you know at the start of it, you've got that, that initial scene is 12 minutes long, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, your, your father was captain of a ship for 12 minutes. That's exactly what he said and exactly how he said it. That's it, exactly. I am the best at remembering these things. Anyway. <laughs> You're um, judging further with... He was drunk. They were in a bar. They were drunk. Anyway. John Wayne. Yes. Later in the film, when Kirk becomes acting captain and takes the seat, it takes 12 minutes between that happening and Spock destroying the Narada space drop. Brilliant. So how many lives does he save? Everybody. Brilliant. All of Earth. At least 800. Yeah. So you, you saved the entirety of Earth. I dare you to do better. Um... <laughs> universe? Yeah. Save the entire universe. I, I, well, the Federation. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of it can go to hell. <laughs> we didn't mention Tyler Perry. What? Did you Where? Did you... I don't. You know, I don't think I've actually seen Tyler Perry, so I don't know what he looks like. Hang on, I'll, I'll find his name. Hang on. Tyler Perry. Have you guys seen that South Park episode with Tyler Perry? Funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tyler Perry. Think... Patrick. Hello. I know who I... Tyler Perry is. I know what I... he does, but I've never seen him. <laughs> I've heard enough American critics talk about how terrible his like movies are. Movies with men in fat suits, especially if they're pretending um, to be women. Uh, no, no, I don't like any of them. What's not to like? Because they're terrible. It's all. It's always lowest common de- domina- dominator. Dominator. <laughs> the lowest common dominator. <laughs> yes, yes, men in fat suits, hilarious. They all are. Yeah, no, he plays uh, uh, Richard Barnett, and he's the guy who um, ha- oversees all the hearings about Kurt being told off for the Kobayashi Maru cheating and all that. That's him. Hmm. All right. He's, sometimes he's a serious actor. He was in an Alex Cross movie. He learned Krav Maga. Um, what, what I do know about Tyler Perry is he wants to be a serious actor, but... Um, he keeps yeah. doing exploitation movies. Like, you don't want to stop doing the fat suit stuff. But they make so much money. <laughs> He's basically Andy Millman. Are you having a laugh? Is she having a laugh? <laughs> 
seeing the Enterprise when they finally sing and there's that is a reference obviously to uh, start of the motion picture when it takes like five minutes to see the whole thing they, they did it in a shorter time but it has to feel just as exhilarating seeing that oh this is probably the first time you get to see Spock running hmm. really doesn't run normally also the bit with the giant horrible beastie that then gets eaten by another giant horrible beastie that hmm. seems like a clumsy reference to the Phantom Menace <laughs> okay yeah I, I've never seen the Phantom Menace before you've never seen the Phantom Menace before I nope. think, honestly, Jerome, it's a terrible film, but I think it's actually worth watching just to have an opinion on it. Yeah, watch it, and then listen to... No, listen to my podcast on it, then watch it so you can know... Oh, no, I've, I've listened to the podcast right. about it. Okay. I haven't actually asked, what did you guys think of Michael Giacchino's score? I, I thought it was uh, superb. I, to be honest, I like all of his work. I haven't uh, seen a film where he hasn't done a superb score yeah. uh, I just think he captured the atmosphere of the um, the original films while at the same time you know giving it a unique spin he, d- he didn't play it safe he uh, he added a bit of his own flavor to it he underpins the emotional core of the film so when you get to the moments where it's it's, it's somewhat leading you but he kind of highlights it. Most of the film, there's a lot of sort of uh, cacophony going on of do 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 do. But when it calms down, and when when he wants to be exhilarating, he gets it. When he wants you to ache, he gets that too. We'll definitely be having more of his music on the sound of Gonzo. Father. I am not our father. There are so few Vulcans left, we cannot afford to ignore each other. Then why did you send Kirk aboard when you alone could have explained the truth? Because you needed each other. I could not deprive you of the revelation of all that you could accomplish together, of a friendship that will define you both in ways you cannot yet realize. How did you persuade him to keep your secret? He inferred that universe-ending paradoxes would ensue should he break his promise. You lied. Oh, I... I implied... A gamble? An act of faith. One I hope that you will repeat in the future as Starfleet. In the face of extinction, it is only logical I resign my Starfleet commission and help rebuild our race. And yet you can be in two places at once. I urge you to remain in Starfleet. I have already located a suitable planet on which to establish a Vulcan colony. Spock, in this case, do yourself a favor. Put aside logic. Do what feels right. Since my customary farewell would appear oddly self-serving, I shall simply say, good luck. I would dearly love to see a brilliant Mass Effect movie trilogy, or better yet, a TV series with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the time to truly develop characters and storylines. 
Battlestar Galactica fulfills a great deal of what I would want to see in a TV series with its dense political and social commentary, ethical quandaries, and themes of artificial intelligence evolving, though it is dark, heavy, and somber, and far too weighty for repeat viewings. New Star Trek provides the other half of this equation. An analogous, exhilarating, tangible universe in an endlessly rewatchable, lightning-fast two-hour adventure. It is the light, optimistic side of Mass Effect, mixing operatic, world-spanning events with dazzling sci-fantasy, compelling character conflicts, and with tasty, quotable dialogue. When the Mass Effect film finally does emerge, I pray it is this good. In the meantime, I, like everybody else not previously acquainted with this franchise, have been given the grounding for what is likely to be an immensely successful series of films, and most likely a show at some point, all of which will deepen the lore and re-explore the old worlds in this new timeline. Something Abram said himself applies to me and the majority of viewers. I didn't love Kirk and Spock when I began this journey, but I love them now. For those who were there already, it's good to be able to join you on this. I may be late to the old party, but I'm right on time for the new one. I think I get it. At its core, Trek is about a bright future, cooperation, difficult decisions, dealing with the outcome of those, and friendships that last on and on. If I'm wrong, Trek fans let me know, because this movie has misled me. But, if I'm right then it has performed invaluable service to Gene Roddenberry's original vision, acing the Kobayashi Maru with flying colours. so cynical but it never fails by the end of the day there's always one or two converts right and today was no exception sam seaborn had a guy who spotted a ufo today am i right mm-hmm. sam laughed him out of his office but you've been thinking about it ever since but you can rest assured sam it was not a spaceship from another planet just another time a long since abandoned soviet satellite one of its booster rockets didn't fire and it couldn't escape earth's orbit a sad reminder of a time when two powerful nations challenged each other and then boldly raced into outer space. What will be the next thing that challenges us, Toby? That makes us go farther and work harder. You know that when smallpox was eradicated, it was considered the single greatest humanitarian achievement of this century. Surely we can do it again, as we did in a time when our eyes looked towards the heavens and with outstretched fingers we touch the face of God. Here's to absent friends. And the ones that are here now. Cheers, cheers. And I'd like to thank my crew, Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Thank you for having me. Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home. Thank you very much. Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. It was a pleasure. And Michael Fox of Little Metal Dog. Thank you very much indeed. Mr. Spock, take us out. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship 
enterprise. Your ongoing mission? To explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life forms and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before.